And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I am sitting here with my co-host, Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? How you doing? It's going good. I'm looking forward to chatting some Hammer. Really? Are you looking forward to chatting some Hammer? Or are you looking forward to chatting some Dracula with me, knowing what my, say, overall feelings on the latter half of the Dracula cycle you know, may, may or may not be? Is that, uh, is that maybe what you're looking forward to? Maybe, maybe a, uh... little, a little from column A, a little from column B. I just, uh, you know, it's, you know, (laughs) it's funny. Uh, I should go ahead and let listeners know that we had a guest drop out at the last second on us, uh, literally about, oh, about 30 or 45 minutes ago. But, uh, (laughs) and I'm not going to reveal who, uh, who it was going to be, uh, but they know who they are. They're out there listening because (laughs) I'll go ahead and admit that I was going to ambush them. Uh, with a conversation on Dracula Untold. Uh, you know, they thought they were going to come home and, you know, maybe talk some Dracula has risen from the grave. No, no. No, we were going to talk Dracula Untold for a solid two hours. Wow. Uh, or a good I'm two minutes. Kind of glad you know? they didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> two hours, two minutes of them, you know, maybe that's all they would have given me and then uh, off they would have went. No, uh, it was going to be another full house tonight, but, uh, you know, like last week. But that wound up not happening but that's okay because we still have a guest with us and it's one of our favorites from the past episodes making a return appearance is mr michael Verratti. mr Verratti, how are you this evening i am excited and happy to be back that's how i am uh so i'm very thrilled to talk some dracula i think last time i was here i even said that i wanted to come back for some dracula so i uh, can't be mad about that now is this the dracula you wanted to come back for uh, probably not, but I'm still down to chap. <laughs> <laughs> is it okay? Okay, so so being fair, in uh, you know, looking forward into the future, is there a specific Dracula film beyond this one that you would be particularly keen to uh, to try and uh, chat about? Um, I have great things to say about most of them following this one, and, and including this one. Uh, as I revealed to Paul today on Twitter, I actually have a theatrical poster for this movie <sighs> hang, hanging in my I'm office. I'm jealous. Um, and I even <laughs> have, a, I have a story about that poster as well, but that, I'll save it for a few minutes. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of just the sheer disco wacky of AD72 and Satanic Rites. Uh, <laughs> And I'm always down to chat about those. Uh, I also really love Taste the Blood of Dracula, to be honest. So, I mean, you any any which way you can at this point. You know? yeah, I, I actually really love Taste the Blood. I, I, I really like AD 1972. Satanic Rites, maybe not so much. Taste the Blood is one of those movies that maybe I uh, I didn't love straight away, but I've come to appreciate it. I mean, you, you I found that you can't really go wrong when you throw Ralph Bates into a movie. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and I... That was Ralph Bates, right? Or was that Scars of Dracula? Am I getting this wrong? No, I believe Ralph Bates was in Taste the Blood. Okay. I love Ralph Bates. I, uh, to me, he's like one of the unsung heroes of Hammer, even though he may not have been in uh, many of them. What? How many was he in? Four? Maybe? Five? Something like that? Um, I should have done research before this. No, that's I, cool. I, I think, yeah, I think four. I could be wrong myself, though, so. And I gotta admit, a lot of that stems from my fandom, uh of uh, horror of Frankenstein, which I think is an uh, massively underappreciated gem, but that's just me. I don't know. Anyone, anyone love uh, horror of Frankenstein? Like, anyone? I like it. That's it. I, that's, that's all. That's, like that's it. all you can muster, Paul. It's just <laughs> I don't know okay. if I would say like, I'm a huge fan of it, but I do like it. I think it's better than maybe it's reputation might have you believe. 
Um, I do think that that movie also has a little bit of a debt of honor uh, to geekdom in general, though, because uh, the Frankenstein monster in Horror of Frankenstein is played by David Prowse. And, uh, of course, when when Darth Vader was cast later, uh, George Lucas, who is an admitted Hammer film fan, originally kind of stylized the sort of lumbering uh, Frankenstein uh, like Darth Vader after the monster so that he got an actual Frankenstein monster to play him was not a mistake. So I think that like everything's cyclical, you know, very I true. Love that. I love that he got Frankenstein's monster. I love that he got Frankenstein uh, <laughs> to be and, one of and, his and, villains. And he later got Dracula, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love Dooku. I really do. Uh, the prequels overall, maybe I have some issues with the first couple. I like the third. Does that count? Um, well, and that gives us the big Frankenstein on the on the slab moment. You know, that's the, yeah. the creation yeah, of Vader. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. As with every episode of this podcast, let's go ahead and take maybe, you know, we're always optimistic and say 30 minutes. Sometimes it takes 30 minutes. Sometimes it takes an hour and 15. We'll just see how it goes. Um, but if we can go ahead and take a few minutes and chat about maybe our recent watches, uh, I guess I should ask up top here, uh, Mr. Roddy, what is your time looking like this evening? I know the movie is about 90 minutes, so if two hours might be too much for you, we can definitely tailor the recording. And I can uh, cut all this out at the beginning too. I'm I'm fine. Let I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. We're gonna have a good time. So, <laughs> all right, Mr. Verratti, uh, what have you seen recently? What have you seen in the past week or two that you think might be worth uh, bringing up? Um, I, you know, it's weird. I kind of have been like on a little bit of a horror break, although I've been like genre adjacent recently. Uh, I have been on this intense like Cynthia Rothrock like watchathon where I've just gone like down this like tunnel of <laughs> kung fu at kung fu action movies and the last one of hers that I watched was a movie called Sworn to Justice which you can watch on Amazon Prime right now and um the trailer made it seem like a standard revenge thriller where like her sister's murdered and she uses her extreme kung fu to like get revenge but then what the trailer didn't reveal and I got to learn and was a real treat while watching the movie is that her character has psychic powers and she uses it to sort of like uh, get the edge on the bad guys. And it goes in this weird sort of like metaphysical like carry with uh, high ninja skills uh, route, which was not at all what I was expecting. Um, it was an absolute delight. Uh, I had a great time with it. Um, yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been, uh, watching, watching ladies kick ass for the last week or so. Okay. So I'm going to have to make a note of this. What was the title of that movie again? Because this sounds like something I need to watch right after we finish recording. Uh, it's called sworn to justice. I believe it was made in the mid nineties. You can watch it on prime. A lot of her movies, uh, have kind of made their way to prime recently. Uh, I know that vinegar syndrome recently put out a double disc, uh, blu-ray remaster of martial law and martial law Two undercover. Uh, and both of those, <laughs> those 4k remasters have made it to prime. I've watched both of those. I also recently watched the tiger claws trilogy. Uh, the best of which I think is tiger claws in which a serial killer is stalking and killing martial arts masters so they have to hire a private investigator who also knows martial arts to stop him like what are the chances <laughs> <laughs> that sounds glorious <laughs> now if you uh have you ever seen a movie speaking of cynthia rothrock this is casting back to my childhood here in the early 90s did you ever see the Corey Haim movie fast getaway 
I have not, but I, I know about it because on this deep dive of, of her movies, I've been uh, educating myself on her career and I discovered that she did a movie with Corey Haim and I didn't know that. And while I'm just now kind of catching up on my Rothrock education, I always considered myself pretty up to snuff when it came to Corey's uh, you know, material. So this was a surprise to me. It is. It is totally worth. Well, here's the thing. It's one of those. Uh, it's kind of in one of those dangerous areas for me where I loved it as a kid, but I don't know if it's going to hold up now. And I haven't seen it in maybe 25 years, something like that. So, um, God, who am I kidding? Maybe 30 years now. Good God. Um, but yeah, no, I uh, I adored it as a kid, but I'm yeah, I'm kind of afraid to go back and revisit. But if you watch it and find that it's actually still great, please let me know. But uh yeah, and at uh, Corey Haim, Cynthia Rothrock is kind of the villain in it. I don't know if she did many villainous roles, but uh, she's great in the movie. Um, oh, the guy from uh, Relentless and uh, Halloween 2, the uh, the jerk of an EMT, uh, Leo Rossi, is in it as well. He plays Corey Haim's dad, if you can believe it. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So if you get the chance to see it, definitely let me know what you think. There is, I will say this. As much as I enjoyed the original movie as a kid, even as a child, I knew that the second movie is pretty terrible. So you might want to give that one a wide berth, even though Cynthia Rothrock is in that one as well. Um, and wait, so this movie with her and Haim, is he like a teenager who runs afoul of like a martial arts villain or what? Kind of, yes. So he is kind of... Part- <laughs> He's like a teenager, but he's a teenage bank robber who pulls jobs with uh, his dad, who is played by Leah Rossi. And the both of them together sort of run afoul of their accomplices. Like the job goes bad, and so it pits sort of one half of the team against the other. And of course, Rothrock is on the more villainous side of that duo. So, uh, so yeah, and then hijinks ensue. But uh, there is a, a pretty incredible highway chase sequence where. Uh, if I'm recalling this correctly, it's been a while, but um, uh, uh, some of the characters actually fight while being dragged across the highway on uh, like a length of fence, like fencing that's being dragged from a truck. And it's just, it's, it's, it's so much fun. I, I do remember having, I weirdly enough, I remember renting the VHS from my local, uh, I don't know if it was a mom and pop or maybe like uh weirdly enough, my local grocery store back when grocery stores tried to get in on the VH rental game, uh, but I rented the thing and I watched it something like three or four times back to back one evening in the summer when I was, uh, you know, in between bouts at school. And um, yeah, I just I, I thought it was a complete and utter blast. And now that I keep talking and talking about Fast Getaway, I want to see if the damn thing ever made it to DVD because I want to watch it pretty badly like right now. Well, it's it sounds like it fits into like a very specific genre that kind of happened in the mid '80s all the way through like the early '90s. What was which was this cross between like teen movies and ninjas that were very vogue at the time. <laughs> and I like used to eat that stuff up like nobody's business. Like I I've mentioned on Twitter a time or two how much I really appreciate the three ninjas movies. Are they good? Probably not. Did I enjoy them when I was a kid? Absolutely. I. Three ninjas kick back when they all three went to Japan to get the like mystical. Oh deck. yeah. What what a piece of cinema! And so then, great. And then of course there's Surf Ninjas with Ernie Reyes Jr. and uh, Rob Schneider, yes. where all of the action hinges around a Game Gear. <laughs> Come on, like what? Honestly, we need a whole separate Ninja Ninjas Meet Kids podcast. Now, how much of that do you think was spurred on by the fact that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was like huge back then? Oh, and without question, and. Uh, if since you asked and you didn't, uh, I am a huge Ninja Turtles fan. I 
am on board all of this. I used to harangue Kevin Eastman all the time. I'd be like, you should let me write for uh, the Ninja Turtles comics. And you know what? To this date, he has not. So if he's listening, Kevin, come on, let's go. Are you it's reading uh, Ronan right now? Uh, I am, and it's great. Oh, my God. I've read the first two issues. I don't know that the third one's come out yet. Wasn't there something like, I only discovered the first issue. I didn't even know the thing existed. And t- Paul, I should let you in on this. Are, are you a fan of the Ninja Turtles at all? I'm, I was, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of them. I haven't, like, it was more like as a kid, I was obsessed with the cartoon show. I had all the toys. I would love the movies. Um, that's kind of, like, my knowledge of it. But I, I'm not as up on the, the comics and things like that. Okay, so in that case, let me let me try and pitch this. Mr. Verratti, tell me if I'm too off base on this. But, Paul, essentially, Ronan is set in the future. It's like, imagine Logan but for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you have one lone Ninja Turtle who is older, he's grizzled, he's scarred up, all of his brothers are dead, he wears a black mask, he carries all of their weapons with him, and he's basically on like this kamikaze suicide mission to take out uh, the, the, the person responsible for the death of his clan. The thing is, and the really cool thing, I think, at the very beginning of the story, you don't know which Ninja Turtle it is. And his personality is so completely different that you can't immediately say, oh, clearly it's Leonardo or Raphael or Michelangelo or Donatello. So uh, it's it's kind of a surprise when you eventually find out who it is. I adore it. I can't believe they haven't already announced making a movie out of it. But then again, I don't know. It's definitely not a children's like tale. Like it's a much harder look at those characters. But I I, kind of wish we'd get a movie because so far, so great. So. But you know what? That takes it back to the original Mirage comics, which is sort of where I tuned in. And of course, I appreciated the whole kind of like 80s Saturday morning cartoon phenomenon that happened. But I I read those black and white comics back in the day. And the Turtles always were kind of hardcore. And then we culturally like made them sort of the fun pizza eating characters (laughs) that they are. And I do appreciate that like the creators as well as like a generation of uh, other artists who grew up with the comics have taken us back to that. Like if you want some post-apocalyptic wild turtle goodness, the 2011 series that they did uh, on Nickelodeon, one of the final uh, sets of episodes is, is a three episode thing set in a Mad Max like future where Mm -hmm. the world, something has happened in the world and you kind of see like Raphael is sort of the Mad Max character uh, it's suggested that not all of them are are still alive, and they're. And I, I was just like, "Wow, this is heavy for a kids show," and yeah. uh, I I thought it was one. I thought it was great. Uh, I think if people are sleeping on the turtles because all they think about is Saturday morning cartoons and pizza, get going. There's some cool stuff out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I do love it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you know the spectrum is as broad as. Um... It is with Batman. You know, you got your yeah, Adam West over here. You know, maybe you got a little uh, Tim Burton over there. And then, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I would call Ronan, like, necessarily Nolan-ish. But, you know, close. You know, it definitely <laughs> takes itself seriously. But, uh, but yeah, sure. great stuff. So, uh, Paul, how about you? What have you seen this last week? Yeah, I mean, that sounds awesome. So I'm adding that to my list. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was Ninja Turtles was a, like, gigantic part of my childhood. Um and uh, I, I too was a was a huge Three Ninjas fan. Uh, both Kickback when Kickback came out, we went to the theaters, and it was like this huge deal for us. So, yeah, you, you brought back some memories there. I did not watch Three Ninjas movies this week, sadly. Um, I kind of wish I had now. Uh, <laughs> but I I did check out um, the Cellar from 1989, which is a 
a recent Vinegar Syndrome release. Um, so this movie, <laughs> like many of Vinegar Syndrome's uh, releases, is uh, is a mixed bag. <laughs> um, but what's really fun about it is it's uh, it, it's kind of a full tilt uh, monster in the cellar movie. Um, with uh, lots of really cool kind of special effects and practical monster goodness. Um, it has its troubling elements. Um, it, it's basically about uh, this this uh, town in sort of rural Texas. Uh, at the turn of the century, they're trying to drill for oil there, and they tap into something evil underground. And there are some Comanche... Indians there that help trap this thing uh, with a magic spear. Uh, years later, a house is built over this uh, particular plot of land, and the spear is found and removed by a kid, and this monster is sort of unleashed. Uh, and a lot of the movie is sort of this little kid trying to kind of convince the adults that there is a monster. Uh, that they should be concerned about and no one really believing him. Um, so he's sort of like setting traps and trying to figure out what this thing is as uh, people around their their small town are being kind of picked off. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's not as zany as I sometimes kind of want out of my Vinter Syndrome movies. Um but it does go to some pretty crazy places. Um, and again, the monster stuff is very cool. Um, you get a full on practical effect monster and it's sort of a, an amalgam of different animals, which I thought was kind of a neat touch. Uh, so it has like different parts of different animals kind of make up the creature. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a fun, uh, 90 minutes. Uh, actually, I think it was like 85 minutes, which is even better. Uh, anything below 90 is generally a safe, a safe watch, regardless of quality. Uh, so yeah, so that was uh, the seller. Nice. Paul, I have to ask you the kid in this. He's okay. So the whole that the creatures in are there like a series of tunnels and whatnot that he kind of uses to escape and uh, like yeah what, does one yes. go up into yeah, the house and yeah there's connective tunnels in the basement that kind of reminded me a little bit of like um oh like amityville to the possession kind of stuff it was very that's kind of how the basement and cellar is set up i should mention it's directed by kevin tenney who did like night of the demons and witchboard and um Katan. yeah right um so it it's it's it has like a decent little pedigree to it, but yeah, it does have that kind of underground tunnel thing going for it. No, I just, I vaguely remembered that movie again from childhood and I remember liking it back in the day, but I just, I haven't seen it in ages. I remember thinking for the longest time that that movie cellar dweller was what I was thinking of. And then I remember reading a synopsis for it and I was like, Oh no, this is clearly not that. So maybe I just made up an entire movie. I don't know, but no, this actually sounds like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the movie I know, so maybe I need to. Uh, Paul, am I revisiting it all these years later? Am I going to like it more than the fear, or less than the fear? Do you think? Um, I don't know, man. I I know you're not a big fear fan. I'll say this: I had more fun with the fear than Seller, uh, personally. But I I like the fear more than you do. I I think the fear is is kind of a bonkers good time. That's I, that's kind of my take on it. I really dig the sequel. 
I, uh, and I, I, I like aspects of the first movie, but the sequel, I think, is where it's at. So, is that the Halloween night one? Yes, yeah. Has no one put that out on Blu ray? That like is languishing and like hold up hell, yeah. right? That, yeah, needs, that needs a Blu ray really badly. And the DVD is out of print. I had to pay uh, entirely too much money for a DVD that probably crowded bargain bins back in the early aughts, but is kind of hard to find now. And I'm sure interest has been driven up by the fact that, you know, there is now a really great Blu-ray of the, uh, the first movie, but yeah, I, I think the sequel is actually a better movie. The only thing I'll give the first movie over the second is that Morty, the, uh, the wooden doll is creepier in the first film. In the second film, it's uh, I told Paul once, it's kind of like Morty from the first film. He got a haircut and he, he's been hitting the gym, you know, like <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, that's, that's what he looks like <laughs> in the sequel. But otherwise, uh, I actually think it's quite good. So. All right. Well, uh, what have I been watching? Um, oh, I guess I should ask first, Mr. Ronnie, are you familiar with the seller? Uh, I know of the seller and uh, I knew that it was a Kevin Tenney film. I also um, had seen it advertised on the Vinegar Syndrome site, but I actually haven't seen it. So uh, I would be curious to check it out just based on the uh, filmmaker's background and, and history. And, uh, you know, I'm always willing to give something a try. Where is Kevin Tenney these days? Is he still making movies or... Um, well, I mean, he lives in my neighborhood because I see him at the bookstore all the time. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, I I did before there was this whole pandemic situation, but uh, <laughs> I, I assume he's doing okay. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if he's still making movies or not, but he's around. That's awesome. Good for him. Uh, yeah, I, I really, I miss the era where we could get movies like the type that he made. You know what I mean? Like we, mm-hmm. he's... He's a filmmaker of another time who made movies that we don't really see that much of anymore. So uh, I don't know. I kind of I I'm a sucker for Pinocchio's Revenge. I, I really I was going to say we need a Pinocchio's Revenge Blu-ray. That, Hell yes, we do. Needs to happen. That I think is a surprisingly solid movie that doesn't get nearly as much love. But uh, but that's just me. So um, anyway, uh, I guess what have I been watching recently? Um, so <laughs> I was writing a piece for Bloody Disgusting last week, and I had cause to rewatch Ghost Ship on the Screen Factory Blu-ray that I just checked out when it was released. What was it like last August, September, or something like that? So it hadn't been that long ago that I'd watched it, but I uh, I rewatched it, and damn it, I uh, I like that movie. I enjoy it. I enjoy the hell out of it, much as I do the other Dark Castle movies. I, I it's maybe. I don't know. It's weird. I, I wouldn't want to even call it a weaker effort because, you know, I, I, I don't want to sort of put it around like Gothica territory necessarily. But you know, maybe it's not as good as House on Haunted Hill. Maybe it's not as fun as 13 Ghosts. But damn it, I think Ghost Ship is a pretty great time, even aside from the opening sequence, which is, I think, kind of an all timer. Um, I, I, I think it's just a really fun, spooky, incredibly well-made movie. And uh, but I will say this, the uh the nature of the article that I wrote was such that I compared the finished movie with the original screenplay that it was based upon, which was much more of a uh, psychological thriller matched with, say, like uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And so a- as much as I love the, uh, hey, here's a movie from the guys who just made Tales from the Crypt a few years ago kind of approach to Ghost mm-hmm. Ship, as much as I like the heightened supernatural stuff in it and just... And again, just the pure fun of it, 
part of me really wishes that we had the uh, the the other version of the movie as well, because I read that original screenplay. It was originally called uh, Chimera, written by a writer named Mark Hanlon. It's very easy to find out there, like 20 seconds on Google and you'll have a copy to read. Um, but it's just it, it's a very different take. It's much more about um, just the breakdown in this much smaller group. There are only four people in the cast. There's no. Uh, there's no demonic soul collector as in ghost ship. There's no massive crew. It's only four people. And it's, uh, you know, it's basically about what happens when you give, you know, a small group of desperate people, like everything that their heart desires, you know, all of the riches they could ever possibly want, even if they split it up amongst them. But then you see the sort of greed overtaking them and they decide that they need it all and not just part of it. And so, you watch the breakdown in this group, you watch different allegiances form and uh, you, you can tell that they're plotting against one another. And so it all barrels toward an ending, which is uh, kind of inevitable in a way, but it's only, there are supernatural aspects uh, to be found in the screenplay. But what I love about it is that by the time you get to the end of the, well, not the movie, but the screenplay, you get the distinct feeling that because only one character was interacting with what we would call the supernatural, it's very possible that it was entirely in their heads the entire time. So I just, I dug that approach. I, uh, again, love the movie, but you know, it would be really nice to see somebody revisit that original screenplay someday and maybe film it under, well, they wouldn't even have to film it under another title. It had a different title to begin with. So uh, now the, the the writer himself, I asked him about that. I asked him if that was a possibility, and he was like, no, nah, probably not. <laughs> probably <laughs> probably never. No, not at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, Hope Springs Eternal, crazier things have happened, and uh, I just think that'd be kind of neat. Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, that's the world of horror, right? And movies in general. The movie right may not always be the movie that you get, but... Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I see. I I like Ghost Ship. I, I I you know I but I was the right age for all of those movies. I I like all of the Dark Castle stuff. Um, Wait a sec. You just said you like Ghost Ship. Where the hell were you last week, Paul? I like when Ghost it was Ship. What it was Joe Lipson and I duking it out over Ghost Ship. I don't remember that. Didn't hear a <laughs> thing from you, pal. <laughs> Got nothing but crickets. It's fine. There, there is a bit of a dark castle renaissance happening right now, though, and I think oh, it's yeah. it's because you know that generation is now of age that the nostalgia celebration is what it was like when kids like me uh, were celebrating the movies of the eighties. You know, so I think it's kind yeah. of, it's kind of fun watching every turn because I'll uh, I'll go and like ha- have lunch with David Delval, who's a, a notable oh, film wow. historian. And David will be complaining. He's like, everybody wants to talk about the 80s, but what about the 50s? And I'm just like, well, of course you would say that because those were the movies that you grew up with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we all have our generation of movies that are kind of ingrained in our psyches and our memories. And I think like we're now at that point where the, the aughts are going to be kind of that new thing where we start rediscovering these movies and, and giving them more credit. You know, I, I love like the, the Renaissance that's happened around like house of wax makes me so happy. Um, like that, that movie is now basically like one of the more popular horror movies. And there was a time when it was the opposite of that, you know, right. but it's so funny how that's changed so quickly. Um, and I, so I think every movie kind of gets its day eventually. And I think, especially in horror, I think yeah. that's like 
a genre that just really lends itself to rediscovery and having sort of an eternally evergreen perspective of looking at these things. Well, it's almost Black Sheep's time to shine. I can't wait. <laughs> I love Black Sheep. <laughs> Black Sheep's so good. It is so good. I, I wasn't saying that, that facetiously. No, I no, don't yeah, it it's yeah. That, that was an awesome movie. I remember. Was that like a uh, like a Dimension Extreme release or something? It was like when they I were rem- doing those DVDs. Yeah, I re- it was because I remember that little red like triangle in the corner. Yeah, of like Dimension Extreme. Yeah. And then they make it look like it's this like really hardcore movie, and I'm like, guys, it yeah. is it's, it's zombie sheep. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. The cover is like very misleading. <laughs> I really, I really dug that label, Dimension Extreme. I, uh, I mean, that gave us what? That gave us both Inside and Martyrs. Is that right? Yes. So yeah, when you and they also that... put out Rogue, and Rogue right. was a great movie too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of these movies are movies that Black Sheep stands shoulder to shoulder with, of course. So, um... <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Well, I will ask you both. I, I am curious to see what your opinions might be on Dark Castle, though, and that sort of renaissance it's having. Do you think that will extend beyond collector's edition Blu-rays of the movies that we already have out there? Do you think that will go beyond just fan appreciation and reevaluation, or do you think there is a possibility that you know, in the kind of climate we have, and as far as like, you know, how much horror movies are typically made for these days, do you think we could possibly see a return to mid-range horror filmmaking at the level that those early Dark Castle movies, you know, sort of gave us? Um, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, it's a little trickier. And I, I mean, I would love it because it would mean someone's investing a considerable amount of, a considerable amount of money into those kind of films. But uh, the landscape right now is is tricky in terms of there are more places than ever to make content for, uh, and that's exciting and encouraging as a creator, but the amount of money that's floating around Hollywood is about the same, which means it's parsed out a, leave a little bit more thinly. Uh, so when you look at something very opulent, like the House on, on Haunted Hill remake, or how uh, just big Ghost Ship or 13 Ghosts looks, those movies were really expensive. And a lot of places aren't spending that kind of money on horror movies now. Um, and and sometimes we we tend to forget being in, in genre circles, especially on Twitter, that that's a very loud but small subsection of the actual viewing populace. Mm-hmm. So it would have to extend past that. They would have to make a considerable amount of sales on home video uh, for, for like House on Haunted Hill or something for someone to be like, you know what? The time is nigh. Do I want that to happen? Sure. Do I think it could happen? Possibly because, you know, places like A24 and uh, some of these companies that have the, the, the money and the prestige are sinking more money into genre films. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like I remain hopeful, but I'm, I, I, I don't want to get anybody's like hopes up either. <laughs> No, I, that makes sense to me, but it still makes me sad. <laughs> Anything's possible. Yeah. It happened once, it could happen again, but yeah, it, it seems like right now, like you said, with, with the amount of outlets and the amount of places making things and where the money's all going, uh, it just seems like it's less likely we're going to get bigger budget. It feels like we get maybe one really 
sort of mid-tier expensive horror movie like once a year or once every like two years from the studios like each studio seems to do like like a krampus or like a house with a clock on its walls which isn't even really horror but it's sort of horror adjacent and utilizing those themes for like 30 or 40 million dollars um and and typically to me it 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 seems like it for that to happen it's got to have like a pretty big cast associated with it or like a name that's going to sell or like a book or some sort of existing IP that they think, uh, you know, would, would cross the, the, the different quadrants, <laughs> you know, like you were saying. And I, I think like a house on hunted Hill or a house of wax, I don't know that it's going to fit uh, each of those sort of tiers for the amount of money it would need to, to, to bring in. But you never know. I mean, all it takes is one executive who's really focused on it with the with the right power, and it could happen. It's true. Even if they just went like the Blumhouse route and made like somewhat smaller, look, all I really want here is a Dark Castle production of William Malone's Mister Sardonicus. Is that too much to ask? Oh, there you go. That's it. That's all. I, that's all. Jinx wants for Christmas. Uh, is that something <laughs> that he wanted to do? Uh, I have no idea. I, I I just really want him to do that because I think <laughs> William Malone is a deeply underappreciated filmmaker who... Did you ever read Roger Ebert's review of Fear.com? I have not. Okay, so he did something amazing in it where I think he gave the overall movie two stars. Like, he didn't like it. And I, you know, you watch Fear.com and it's like, you know, fair. Um but he gave stretches of the movie, like, and the visuals and Malone's direction, four stars. And he went on and on about what a great, like, visual stylist that Malone was. And by the end of his review, he said, I fully expect to make, uh, sorry, I fully expect for this man to make a masterpiece someday. And uh, I just, I remember reading that and thinking, like, I do too, Roger Ebert. Like, I <laughs> I want to see that happen. And it felt like after Fear.com kind of failed at the box office that Malone was kind of cast aside. You know, I can't recall him doing anything else. You know, he did a couple of Masters of Horror. Uh, I think he crowdfunded a movie called Parasomnia, which was very low budget. And that guy's vision needs a healthy budget, I think, to succeed. Um but it, yeah, it's just kind of a bummer to me that that man never got paired with like an amazing script that sort of could, you know, uh, uh, prop him up as a director, I think, because I think he'd knock it out of the park. Um, so I kind of, you know, I always wished he would go back and play in that kind of arena in, you know, a sandbox that large again, but it never really, never really happened. And for that matter, too, like Steve Beck, you know, the guy who did 13 Ghosts and uh, Ghost Ship, I think proved himself to be a pretty damn good genre director. And yet... What did he do after that? Were those his only two movies? I think they were. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, that is crazy. I could speak on Dark Castle for another four or five hours. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) for risk of that, I'm going to pull myself away from Dark Castle for a second. Uh, I know we're like 35 minutes in. Do you guys want to do one more round of recent watches or dive right into Dracula? Uh, I'm down for whatever you guys want. All right, I'm always for more talking over less. Uh, Mr. Roddy, what else have you seen in the last week? Oh, God. In the last week, what have I seen? Um, I Well, I did uh, kind of binge watch the <laughs> these V.C. Andrews movies that Lifetime had made. Um, 
Because I had seen when they did all four of the Flowers in the Attic movies, which I thought were deliciously sleazy. Uh, and <laughs> and that's exactly what I need. Um, but this weekend, I got my second dose of the uh, COVID vaccine, the Pfizer. And so I knew that I that's... needed to just lay low. Uh, and I have the Lifetime Movie Club app because I am a frequent writer of Lifetime films, and I like to keep up with what they're doing. And I knew that they had done another VC Andrews uh, series called Heaven. And there are five of those movies, and I watched three of them this weekend, and uh, every scene had me gasping at the fact that they were doing something even more uh, dramatic and 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 uh, pearl-clutching than the last, so kudos on them. I don't even really know how to describe these movies. Uh, <laughs> It basically is this this girl who grew up like in a uh, blue collar hillbilly situation. Her words c- coming from the movie. That's not me casting any judgment. They like go out of their way to call her that in the film. And mm-hmm. then she discovers that she is actually like was secretly secreted away as a baby uh, and ends up uh, was is the descendant of this rich but creepy family uh, run by Jason Priestley. And uh, shit gets weird and kind of oddly sexual um i don't even know i felt very very uncomfortable and yet i kept watching it and then <laughs> and then when i was done i watched uh godville godzilla versus gigan so you know like a complete like <laughs> it's a good chaser <laughs> yeah. i want to see that movie i want to see like a lifetime movie where a kaiju just sort of interrupts the proceedings yeah you know same i actually yes i have thoughts on that but i don't know if I should, yeah. <laughs> I think, that wasn't there, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it wasn't exactly a Lifetime movie, but what was the movie that Anne Hathaway was in uh, a handful of years ago where it was kind of a... Uh, oh, Colossal. You know, Colossal, yes, yes, yes. I actually enjoyed that quite a bit. But um, but yeah, no, that's... Uh, I just think there should be more kaiju and everything. That's just me. I don't disagree. <laughs> Paul, how about you? Do you have another choice? Um... I've been I've been kind of weak this uh, this past week in terms of like my watching. I did I guess I did watch the uh, Blair Witch trilogy again, oh. uh, which I hadn't seen in in a few years. I I I, I hadn't watched all three of them like together, uh, maybe ever. I don't know if I've ever done that. Um, but yeah, my my wife went backpacking, uh, so. Of course, we decided that the most appropriate movie to watch in preparation for that was Blair Witch, <laughs> uh, which may may have been a bad choice <laughs> uh, in terms of that. But uh, yeah, so I rewatched those. I mean, Blair Witch was a movie. I, I mean, this is a movie that's been talked about a bazillion times, so I don't know that I have anything to add to it. But, um, you know, I when I was like. I believed it was real when it came out. I watched the documentary on the sci-fi channel, which that probably should have been a giveaway that it wasn't real, that it was airing on the sci-fi channel. But either way, like I was like really primed and terrified and saw it opening weekend with a bunch of people in a packed theater and like went home that night and had to turn on all the lights because I couldn't sleep. Uh, so yeah, that movie is definitely burned into my, uh, into my movie brain and uh then i i chased that with blair witch 2 book of shadows which i am a big fan of i know 
that movie has its, uh, uh, you know, people who don't like it. Uh, but but it's another one of those movies, though, that really it feels like over time it's it's gaining traction. I think I think it's one sort of special edition Scream Factory Blu-ray away from kind of being rediscovered in the same way that these Dark Castle movies were. Um, and I think it's a really smart sort of, uh, I don't know, meta textual examination of like the Blair Witch Project's impact on cinema and movie going audiences and sort of what it means. Um, I really love Blair Witch too. Uh, so every time I see that movie, it kind of grows in my estimation. I don't know. I know uh, Jinx, you, you like this movie. Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts on Blair Witch too? Uh, I've always liked Blair Witch too, and it's and you're right though. I think that like when it first came out, it always felt like the contrarian opinion to people to say that you liked this because it was sort of very popular to hate on this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. But slow, slowly, people have come around, and it is kind of fun to see people uh, really embracing it now uh, that the years have passed. And I think for exactly the reason that you're saying is that with time and distance. Uh, people really see what the filmmakers and screenwriters were doing with that movie as sort of like a, a horror movie as commentary on the cult of horror movie, really. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that the issue is when the sequel came out, it was too close to the original. And it was exactly the Halloween three of it all is people just wanted more of the same. But I think if there had been a little more distance and the whole thing was like, we're kind of critiquing the original movie now. Uh, It, it, I don't know. I think that time has been kind to it and I, it will only continue to, to be so. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I hope that we eventually see, cause I know uh, Joe Berlinger's like original cut was sort of kind of different than what we actually got. And there were some changes and things. Um, and I, I believe that footage does exist. Like th- this is one of those situations where it's not like a lost cut. It's just was never released. So I think it would be cool if we got sort of an, the, the original vision of that movie restored because he, he's somebody that obviously has made, um, some very powerful films. Um, you know, he did the, the paradise lost trilogy, um, and, uh, a lot of music videos and things like that, but he, he's, he has, he's a very driven filmmaker with with a vision when he when he wants to have one and i think it's unfortunate that blair witch 2 is such a negative experience for him because i would have liked to see what else he might have had to say um but yeah i mean i'm I'm hoping that um this sort of reevaluation of blair witch 2 that's happening will lead to uh, a very nice release for it which i'm sure somebody will do it eventually uh that will kind of catapult it uh, into the the zeitgeist a little bit more. Um, I surely hope so because I mean, isn't it Lionsgate? So aren't they? I mean, just from listening to various podcasts and reading interviews and whatnot, like I aren't they one of the more notoriously difficult studios to sort of prize away titles to do special yeah. editions of? Yeah, yeah. And honestly, they would I, have, I mean, if okay. we were ever going to get that special edition, I think it would have come out to sort of help promote the third film and i feel like it being lionsgate and the fact that it didn't happen then like i i just you know we got the director's cut of nightbreed on blu-ray if that can happen anything can happen but i'm just i'm no longer (laughs) holding my breath on the berlinger cut of uh yeah well 
Lionsgate doesn't believe in the movie. That's why it didn't come out. You know, like they don't they don't think that the fans want it. And so they're not going to put any time or effort into it. It's going to take a boutique label. Eventually, Lionsgate's going to have to open up their doors a little bit. But whether or not that happens, I, I who knows? Um, but yeah, and I, I chased that with uh, the 2016 Blair Witch, um, which is another movie that kind of, you know, obviously it's Adam Wingard, who is an amazing uh, director. Uh, and I love most of what he's made. Um, and now he's like a big time director. Now he's a Godzilla versus Kong director. Um, but it's, it is funny to watch Godzilla versus Kong and then go watch Blair Witch, uh, cause they couldn't be more different. Um, and at the same time, so that, that movie, which again, also gets sort of a bad rap. I, I really enjoy his Blair Witch. Um, it's sort of the opposite of Blair Witch 2. <laughs> it's very much trying to give fans what they like about the first one, but with expanded mythology. Um, I find it really interesting that to me, this movie actually incorporates a lot of what Blair Witch 2 suggests in the mythology, which is stuff that sort of plays with time and day and night and um, kind of that uh, weird sort of vortex that they get caught in that the first one barely hints at, uh, but it's there, I guess, if you're looking for it. Uh, but Blair Witch 2 goes a lot deeper into. So I actually see Blair, the new Blair Witch is an amalgam of all of the mythologies and putting it into a package that is, you know, very reminiscent of the first Blair Witch. Um, there's a lot of different things that occur. Um, you know, some complaints are that, you know, there's, there's, a lot of things that happen that don't really pay off all the way, but I think that's kind of the nature of a found footage movie um, is that not all of it necessarily will, um, you know, most of the things that they have kind of break down um, what, you know, there is some criticism lobbed at the fact that they do show the witch. Um, I guess you could, yeah, they, they show the witch uh, and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I think the movie is pretty effective. I think it's a, a cool update. Like I said, that, that sort of brings the mythology a little bit farther um, and opens up the world a little bit uh, in a way that makes the movie more franchisable than I think the original obviously did because it wasn't really intending to. Um, and that maybe the second one wasn't also intending to do. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I had a really good time with that movie and I, it's grown on me over the years as well. I, I need to revisit it. It's been a couple of years. Um, it didn't, I, I was so incredibly excited for it. I think the way they dropped the announcement for the movie was, uh, was amazing, oh, yeah. you know, pushing it as that the woods and then cool. At San Diego Comic-Con, what, less than two months before its release? It's like, oh, no, this is actually a stealth Blair Witch sequel. It's like, uh, that was amazing. I revisited the previous two movies. I reread all the comics, the tie-in books. Like, I couldn't have been more excited. And then uh, I, you know, I, 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 I watched it, and I thought it was, um, I thought it was fine. You know, I thought it was uh, well-made, certainly, but uh, just it, it, I don't know. It just, I didn't connect with it in the way that I do the prior two movies. Um, I, I don't know. 
I don't even know why. I haven't revisited that much. I've seen the movie maybe twice, I think. Um, one thing that you noted, though, that was maybe one of the bigger disappointments for me that was, uh, I, I, I guess, sort of undone by uh, was co-writer Simon Barrett. He was on Twitter, and somebody had pointed out, they were like, how could you show The Witch? And he said, we didn't. Uh, so well, sure, yeah. Whatever you see in the movie is not like, well, there is that setup in the movie, the idea that the witch, you know, they add that extra little bit of mythology where they tie her to a tree and tie weights to her limbs. And, you know, so later on we see a creature with elongated limbs and it's like, oh, clearly that's the witch. And I wonder if the idea wasn't that, you know, I don't think what's her name. Ellie Kedward is casting spells to reverse time and to mess with people in that way in the woods. I wonder if the point of the thing and what they were maybe getting at with that sequel, and maybe they plan for further follow-ups, is the fact that there really isn't a witch at all. Maybe it's just the land. Maybe it's the ground. Maybe it's just a bad Yeah, there's place. a there's a darkness there that's that's empowered by people's belief. Yeah. Right? I and so like is, they is create their own... which again is a Blair Witch Two thing. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is really cool. Michael, how about you? Uh, or how do you feel about the Blair Witch movies in three? I guess. Um, well, actually, I you know I have a funny aside about the the announcement of three because uh, for people who don't know, I do a regular panel at San Diego Comic Con and have for a number of years. I, I host and curate their queer horror panel, uh, and um, despite Comic Con being a four and a half day event. Um, and there are hundreds of panels, sometimes the programming kind of works against us. And by what I mean is you would think they would space out their horror panels because they would assume that the same kind of group of people who want to go to one are going to go to the other. But on the night of the Woods panel, it was at the exact same time as my panel that year, uh, as well as something I think John Carpenter was doing, if I recall correctly. And, uh, I just was in my hotel room getting ready and I happened to be keeping an eye on social media and some kid had uh, tweeted. They were like, oh, my God, all of these horror panels. I want to go to the horror queer horror panel, but I'm curious about the woods and I just don't know um, which one to pick. And I and I just responded. I was like, well, I can't speak for the woods, I said, but. As the host of the queer horror panel, I'm the one who's responding to you, so you should come to mine. And <laughs> and that kid came and came and talked to me afterwards and was perfectly lovely. And then later when we left the hall, someone came up to me and said, did you hear that The Woods was revealed to be the new Blair Witch Project? And I was like, oh, I totally fucked up that kid's night. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't regret it because my panel was awesome that year. So <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, but I have to confess that I actually haven't seen the new Blair Witch, so that's the only thing I can weigh in on the movie. That's that's fair. I uh, did you all did you get the sense though, each of you, that it, it, and it kind of proved to me too that maybe the horror community isn't fully representative of say mainstream audiences. We already knew that, but nevertheless, it is very easy to get swept up in. Uh, the excitement for a new title coming out and, you know, imagining that the same is going to be true of audiences everywhere. And it seemed like that Blair Witch movie was going to be absolutely huge, you know, the weekend that it came out. And, uh, and instead it was pretty much crickets. Was it not like it, it severely underperformed and it felt like to me, it almost felt like the nail in the coffin of that franchise. Like, I can't see that series after the last two uh, installments going theatrical again. Maybe a television series? I don't know. But uh, I don't, Or do you two 
think that I'm nuts for that because I, I don't know. I, I, I wish it the best, but I just can't. It, it feels like after two strikes, even I, I'm not sure that it's going to get another turn at the, uh, the plate. Why am I using baseball metaphors? I don't like baseball. I don't know. Anyway. Well, I mean, horror is the ultimate comeback kid, right? Like, I mean, it may not, it might be dead for now, but there could be rejuvenated interest later. Uh, and as, as we know, time is kind to horror titles and time is kind to our mythologizing of horror titles. So, um, I've seen announcements of movies being remade or getting long awaited sequels that people get really jazzed about that. You know, if you actually go back and look at the box office numbers or the, the, the receipt at the time, it wasn't great, but, um, with the power of nostalgia comes uh, a different kind of opening of pocketbooks. So maybe the Blair Witch is quiet for now, but in 2037, someone might be like, it's time Blair Witch for baby. And that could be it. You know, <laughs> that's super true. I mean, look at the thing, right? The thing didn't do well when it came out and they ended up remaking it. You know, it's like every title sort of has that Renaissance. And I think the Blair Witch being a franchise in general, like will help it. I, I am positive we will someday see another Blair Witch. Um, and I believe, if I recall correctly, that movie, while it didn't light the world on fire, it did it did perform admirably its opening weekend. I think I think the biggest issue that movie suffered from in terms of being a huge movie is the surprise drop. Because you had no you didn't have time to build up the marketing. And while the surprise drop was really cool for horror fans, like if you're talking about reaching a, a vast wider audience that isn't just paying attention to horror Twitter or whatever, um, you're not really giving yourself enough time to build up the excitement of that movie. And I think that's why it didn't have the same sort of sticking power. And then it wasn't helped by lukewarm reviews because uh, yeah. a lot of people were kind of like, oh, this is exactly what you expect it to be. It's nothing special. But looking at its returns, I just looked it up since we were talking about it. Uh, it grossed twenty four point four million in the uh, in the U S. and f for a worldwide total of forty five point two million. And its overall budget was five million, so it more than made back its money. Oh yeah. yeah. Do you think they consider that a success then? Because it was yeah. only made for a small amount of money, and it made a good deal of money back. Sure, but at the same time, like when you compare like a uh, a twenty some million dollar take to what like over two hundred for the original i mean i yeah i don't know i yeah I, but you you have to base it on percents like i mean ultimately it's like if if a a twenty two million dollar movie makes a hundred million dollars that's a success, but it's like you know what percent of what you know it, it did did it make its budget back and here it made its budget back three or four fold. Uh, it, it wasn't a critical success, but studios don't care. <laughs> they make <Yeah>. sequ <laughs> they, they, they make sequels to critically panned movies all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Which leads me into uh, my last rewatch for this past week. Uh, I am about four movies in now. I am racing to get all of them in before uh, uh, before this week's big horror release. Um, I'm revisiting the Saw franchise. Um. So I've spent the last couple of days watching, uh, well, like I said, I just finished up four and, uh, I've always been a sucker for that franchise. I, I, I love those movies. It was long before the MCU. That was the television series in which we only got like one episode, one 90 minute long episode a year that happened to play in theaters. Like it did at first, damn it. Um, 
And I just, I, I love it. There's something like there's a nostalgic tie for me to them because like those movies I previewed every year with my friends at, uh, you know, the movie theater that I worked at. And every year we would always have a watch party in advance of the new one. You know, we would meet at somebody's house and we would pop in the DVDs and watch, you know, these uh, progressively longer movie marathons, you know, with each passing year to catch up before we saw the new one. And, uh, I don't know. I still get jazzed about them when I watch them. I know that they're not particularly loved critically. Um, with the horror community, I it's hard to read sometimes. I see a lot of excitement for them, uh, especially leading up to Spiral coming out this week. But at the same time, it, it also seems like large swaths of fandom maybe don't really care for the movies that much. So, uh, But me, I, I, I think they're a gas. I, I, I love the setup. I love the character. I... I Adore Tobin Bell's villain in it. I think he's maybe the one truly iconic horror movie villain that we've had in the last, what, two decades of horror. I can't think of another that I would stand next to him. Not saying that there are, you know, that there aren't any great horror villains, but I'm talking about, like, iconic, you know, that have sort of stood the test of time. Like, I can't think of any personally. Um... And, you know, beyond that, I, I just love the storytelling. I love how fractured the narrative is. I love that it's kind of like a big jigsaw puzzle in its own right, where it's like, okay, the movies kind of work on a couple of pieces over here, and okay, they're kind of done there, but then they leap to the other side of the puzzle, and they fill in a little bit of the center, and then back over here. I just, I dig the hell out of that. And uh, I, I love the fact that, you know... I, I, I think there's this sort of notion that movies are strongest when uh, sequels rather are strongest when they can sort of stand on their own two feet, you know, as an individual story and not, you know, be beholden to what's come before. I love that this series just completely scoffs at that and insists that, you know, the mythology and insists on you paying close attention to what's come before in order to enjoy what's happening currently. I, I love that. So, uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting the back half of the franchise in the days leading up to Spiral. I'm not really looking forward to watching Saw 3D again because that's my least favorite. But otherwise, I I dig the franchise. I really do. Oh my god, I killed the conversation. Crickets. Good god. <laughs> I well, the problem is I and you know this about me. Uh I have not seen the Saw franchise really. I've seen one and two. And I, uh, so I can't really comment. I, I'm going to, I, as you also know, I'm going to finally watch them. I started, what, two nights ago, I watched one again for the first time in a while. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to finally go through them all. But yeah, I mean, I've only seen the first two. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's actually kind of, uh, the same as Paul. I, it was just a franchise that I think came out during a time when, uh, I, I didn't get to go and see everything or I was rushing here and there. I saw the first one and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And then it was sort of intermittent, like I would catch bits of a sequel while someone was watching it. But I've never really fully sat and watched the franchise. So I don't really want to offer any opinion uh, other than, you know, I, I do know that they are kind of like the the new franchise that has like a a benchmark place in, in the genre. I know people love Jigsaw. Uh, you know, from a professional standpoint, I've worked with a number of actors who have been in these movies, so I probably should have seen more of them, and mm -hmm. I intend to. But it, it's kind of that thing that happens where, like, 
there's the TV show that everybody loves, but you somehow miss the first season. And then all mm. of us and, and you intend on watching it. And then next thing you know, you blink and we're six seasons in and you're like, oh, there's there's no fucking way I'm catching up now. So I have to kind of just wait till it's all over and watch it secretly uh, and <laughs> in my own time. And that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I think this new one looks great. Uh, I, I uh, really enjoy the screenwriter quite a bit. I am excited to see what they do with it. Um and I think that is cool that Chris Rock is leading a horror movie. So, uh, I mean, I'll get there. Uh, I, I, I trust I trust the taste of the community uh, that, you know, it, it has endured for a reason. So I'll let you know once I, I cycle back. Very cool. Very cool. Now, can I ask, since Spiral is being kind of billed as a standalone and it's not, well, even Jigsaw, the, the last movie that came out from the same writer, um, is, uh, Josh Stahlberg. Yeah. Um, you know, that movie was very much, you know, when you watch the sequels, two, three, four, five, six, um, 3D, like I said, you know, those very much depend on you knowing like the uh, very minute details of the prior movies. Uh, with Jigsaw, it was very much a sort of wipe the slate clean. It's not a remake, you know, it's still in canon with the previous movies, but it was kind of like, Okay, if you know there's a serial killer named Jigsaw who puts you through traps and tests and whatnot, like, you're good to go. That's all you need. And it feels like Spiral is kind of doing the same thing. So are either of you, even Paul, you know, if you don't get the chance to finish all the Saw movies beforehand, or Michael, if you, uh, you know, you haven't caught them yet, are you still going to try and catch Spiral in theaters, or are you going to hold off until uh, the full franchise sort of uh, watch? Um, for me, it would just kind of depend. Like, I mean, I think I would prefer to finish the franchise, but you know, with, with the world opening up and us able to see our friends again and go to theaters again, if someone says, Hey, let's go to the movies and see spiral. And it's, it's a good chance to have a social outing with people and see a horror movie. I'm going to go. So, uh, I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm open to it. Uh, yeah, my answer is probably the same, although I doubt that'll happen for me. I, the one downside about where I am right now is I don't have a lot of like horror fan friends that live near me. So like, that's one of the reasons I don't, uh, even before COVID, I didn't get out to the theater too often for horror. Um, just because I, I'm not, I've just never been a big, like go to the movies alone type of person. I really like to have, um, a person to go with. Um, and while like, you know, I have my wife, but she's just not a big, she likes horror movies, um, but she doesn't like to go to the theater. She's just never been a big theater person, like the enclosed space of it and stuff like that. So she likes to kind of watch stuff at home. So I really only go to the theater, uh, when I have like a certain movie that appeals to like the people I know around here. So I highly doubt that, uh, a a new Saw sequel will be something that, um, anyone I know here would actually want to go with me too. So I think I'm probably going to just take this opportunity to finally power through the series. Like, as I told you the other day, Jinx, like this is something that's been on my list for a really long time. I have all of the movies on Blu-ray. Like I'm just going to do it. Um, so I'll probably, I, I don't know that I'm going to see it in theaters. Um, but if the opportunity arises, uh, I would love to go see it in a, on a screen. Rock on. Good deal. Very cool. Well, I uh, I just I love that there are brand new horror movies going into theaters again. It's 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 been far too oh, long. Yeah. So honestly, yeah. anything would have been uh, 
<sighs> would have worked. But now, you know, like now that we're in the May, now that the world feels like it's slowly but surely kind of getting back up on its feet, the fact that there is like a big would we call this event horror? Like, I know that it's not a massive budget, but at the same time, it feels like an event, you know, like a big franchise coming back. Just the fact that that's happening again, it makes me kind of giddy. Admittedly, yeah, I'll yeah. be all the more excited with Candyman. And uh... I was going to say Candyman's the one I'm really <laughs> excited about. That's Candyman my... and Halloween Kills. And Halloween are... Kills, yeah, of course. So, Of course. All right. Well, hey, we are about an hour in. How about we go ahead and dive into some Dracula Has Risen from the Grave? Sounds yeah. Sounds great. All right, now, Paul, as with the last uh, 70 days or so, I am still teetotaling. Um, And, Michael, did I get that right? You're teetotaling as well with me? I am, indeed. Paul, how about you? Are you... uh... Uh, Well, as the the local drunk on the Hammer Club, (laughs) I I always have to be the one guy. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm not doing anything crazy. I've got a couple blue moons. So just, you know, just chill. Some chill beers. Rock on. Now, how are we all watching this movie? I have the, uh, oh, I think it's the Warner Archive Blu-ray with the, uh, the, the simple menu up top. How about you all? I have a trusty old DVD. Nice. Nice. Yeah, just the Warner, I don't even think mine is Warner Archive. I think it's just the studio Warner release uh, with zero special features and like a trailer. <laughs> yep, uh, that might be. But hey, yeah, it has I don't think... and it's an HD, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I pro- that's probably the same one that I have. I, I guess I related to Warner Archive simply because that's how I bought them all. I uh, I went on an upgrade kick with the Dracula franchise a few months back, and this was yeah. uh, sort of in yeah. the mix. So. All right. Well, I tell you what, let's go ahead and all press play here uh, with the countdown. I'll start from five and we will go all the way to play. All right. Listeners out there, honestly, if you've if you've listened to even one episode before, you know the deal. Just press play with us. It'll be cool. All right, everybody here in five, four, three, two, one and play. Oh, Warner Brothers Seven Arts. Oh, damn it. Okay, so I'm going to try and zip ahead. I'm getting all the FBI warnings. Damn it. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm right where we're supposed to be. Really? Such an, I, you never see that Seven Arts logo. <laughs> no. I've got, I've got some blood dripping down the screen right yeah, now. Yeah, I've got blood too. Okay, yeah, so blood. I just, yeah, I zipped ahead. Okay. And Dracula has risen. So um, we we mentioned the uh, the poster, the the uh, theatrical poster. One of them, uh, and the one that Paul and I exchanged comments about on Twitter today, is this wonderful image uh, with the woman in black and white looking up with the two band aids on her neck, and it says Dracula has risen from the grave. Obviously, uh, <laughs> and this this is even though this is not my favorite of the Hammer Dracula movies. This is one of my favorite posters in the history of ever. Uh, and, oh, yeah. um, years and years ago when I was living in Pittsburgh, the Warhol museum did a very amazing exhibit, uh, that was, uh, cinema trash. They basically did a whole thing where it was like old drive-in movie posters and, uh, grindhouse movie one sheets, as well as original art pieces by modern artists depicting movies. And it was like a really cool exhibit. And among the posters they had hanging at the Warhol museum was this specific poster, and at the time, I was like, well, it's hanging at the Warhol Museum. I'll never be able to have a copy of that. And then uh, 
I just looked it up and I found a print on eBay and I bought it and it's been hanging in my office ever since. <laughs> that's amazing. I that's a poster I definitely want to somehow acquire someday because yeah, it's I agree. It's one of my absolute favorite posters, uh, despite the fact that this is ranks a little bit lower for me on my overall Dracula list. It occurs to me that I actually have a Dracula poster hanging at least in every room of my place. I think I I I, I, I didn't realize it was the uh, the motif of my my house, but I've got a uh, Dracula meets the Seven Brothers in the other room, and oh nice. Uh, I have a Langella Dracula over elsewhere. So, um, do you have a Dracula Untold? Because. Uh- um... Uh, you know what? I don't have a Dracula Untold poster, but I do have a Dracula Untold tote bag uh, because they were giving them away for free at Comic-Con one year, and I always need something to carry things. Um, also, I just want to comment. We're at the point in the movie where this young strapping gentleman who's about to go open the church, he's like real excited to go to church. It, like it, <laughs> like, like the, that. it always cracks me up at the beginning. He's like, you know, darn skippy, like rushing on in. He like could not be more thrilled to be Catholic. He is like ready to go. Like... It's it's indicative gosh, of this right. movie's general thrust regarding religion. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is one of the things I struggle with about this movie. And we'll talk it, about that it goes. But yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting watching this because we just did Devil Rides Out. And Devil Rides Out has some similar sort of like God saves the day kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see these back to back. And especially given it kind of makes sense, given that Terrence Fisher was like supposed to direct this movie originally before Freddie Francis was brought on. Yeah. So Terrence Fisher was in an automobile accident, which prevented him from directing this. And they brought up right. Freddie Francis, who, you know, as, as most people know, is the DP for a lot of these. And I do think that's why this movie looks so beautiful, because Freddie Francis oh, yeah. was foremost. Uh, it was an amazing cinematographer, and I think some of the shots, especially later with Dracula, like on the rooftop and things, are are very Freddie Francis. But um, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, it gets real religious. Although I do like this whole opening sequence with the uh, the reveal up in the bell tower because technically we can infer that these events happened sometime during. Dracula Prince of Darkness because this was supposed to be while Dracula was still alive because they make mention of the fact that he was like frozen under the river in a bit so I like a movie you know speaking uh, to Jinx's commentary about the Saw movies tying into each other I like that this makes a point to be like yeah this this uh, ties into the last one please pay attention (laughs) yeah I I do appreciate the continuity of of the Dracula films I mean even as loose as it sometimes gets and and that's one of the reasons I think of this this franchise as more of like a proto slasher than I do like the Frankenstein stuff because Frankenstein is constantly sort of reinventing continuity or just flat out ignoring it Um, but but this this whole franchise at least attempts to kind of build off of the previous one generally and yeah it, it is cool to think that that during Prince of Darkness, like Dracula is like killing other people unrelated to the narrative. <laughs> yeah. Although I do have to point out that boot that just fell out of the bell. There's no way if that boot was on her foot, that would have just come loose. There were so, <laughs> there were so many laces on that shoe that like, it would have just had, he like, did he just like stuff it in her mouth and it fell? I don't understand. <laughs> I will say, you know, I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I'm not, you know, I love Hammer and I adore the Frankenstein cycle. I have struggled with, uh, you know, the Dracula movies, especially the later ones. Like, I love Horror of Dracula. I adore it. I, I respect it as being, 
you know, one of the great Hammer movies. Brides of Dracula is one of my favorite ever. Like, it's pretty much tied with uh, Frankenstein Created Woman. Beyond that, like, I'm not the biggest fan of Prince of Darkness. Uh, even on the rewatch, you know, we did a commentary for it a few episodes back. Um, I found that I appreciated it a bit more, but I'm still not, you know, it's 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 fine, you know. Um, with some of the later ones, you know, I, I really dig Taste the Blood, uh, 80, 1972. Of course, uh, you know, the final one is amazing just because, even though it doesn't have Christopher Lee in it, my God, the sort of melding of uh, Hammer and the Shaw Brothers. But, you know, Scars, maybe not so much. Satanic Rites, not so much. But this one, I was kind of surprised upon revisiting it that I've kind of warmed to this one a little bit, actually. Like, I, I enjoyed it this time around. I think it's just kind of a, a bit of a fun romp. Um, and I think, you know, and part of that is simply because, too, that I... I really love Freddie Francis, I think. I, I I don't think he's necessarily an unsung hero of Hammer, but maybe is undersung a thing? Not sung so much? You know, is yeah. that possible? You know, it's... I, I, I just, I really dig his sort of... I dig his directing style and his visual style, especially in comparison to Terrence Fisher's, who, I mean, Fisher is brilliant. I, I love his stuff, but I love that there isn't really that much in the way of, like, the sort of theatricality to Francis's direction, unlike Fisher, you know, it, it kind of, it lends this otherwise distant and kind of removed tale, a bit of immediacy, I think his direction. Yeah. I, you know, I think that Freddie Francis certainly has his place in the world of horror. And I think that, um, no one would ever argue that he, he paints a beautiful palette for every movie that he makes. He, he uh, knows how to make a lush movie. He's good with cinematography um, I don't know. I just think that this uh, this film has a lot going for it. There's just some things that I find interesting about it. Yeah, and yeah, it is I, interesting I, too. You... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Oh no, you're fine. I just wanted to chime in on the Freddie Francis of it all. I, like for me, um, I and I I agree, Jinx. And you know how much of a fan, a Terrence Fisher fan, I am. Um, I think what I liked about Francis doing this movie. Is that like when Fisher shows up, he's there to sort of really focus on the visuals as uh, as a metaphor for the ambiguity and the crisis of faith and the, you know, the kind of like the the very stringent good and evil battle. And he's he's telling some very emotional trying to tell like like show emotional truth by way of the visuals. Freddie Francis shows up and he's here for like a fun, spooky, good time. Is kind of how I see him. Like, and 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 I love you know some of the films he made um, for uh, Amicus. You know, I think he made some of the best. Um, like Tales from the Crypt is amazing. Yes, um, it's one of it, my favorite anthology horror films. Um, you he know, just tor- come off of a uh, Torture Garden. Uh, yeah, yeah Torture Garden is great. Um, the Skull is great. I mean, Doctor Terror's House of Horrors is great. So. I mean, I really like his sensibilities. Um, and I think, like, I'm, again, as this movie was intended for Fisher, it kind of makes sense that the script is very heavily weighted towards religion and and sort of belief in God and, and all those, that, that kind of thematics. I wonder, had he developed the film from the get-go, would it not have been a different thing? Um, because I think his visuals would would have definitely suited a movie more that was less interested in this morally righteous uh, kind of 
end result than you know than what I think he he normally sets out to, to do. Um, but I, I I do love the look and feel of the movie, even if I don't love what it's about. Yeah, you, you know, and I, like right now we have the Monsignor has entered the pub and is is chastising everybody. And, and that's kind of where the beginning of a lot of the problems lie with me is that uh, we spend a lot of time with this guy specifically and I just don't like him. And I, I think that it's like, <laughs> and I don't know, I'm not one of these that you have to have likable characters to sell a movie, but then you have to have at least some compunction why we need to follow them. But he enters chastising this entire town for something they know far better than he. Later on, he's a real dick to the boyfriend. And then it's just like the the whole kind of arc of the movie is just that he's pious, so he's right. And I'm like, "Mm, no, no. Because ultimately, Dracula wouldn't even have come back if he wasn't being all high and mighty and and Jesus-y about it. So (laughs) You're, You're absolutely right. And I was hoping, like, when I first watched this movie, I was really hoping, because when when you first meet uh, Paul, and I always hate talking about characters that have my name, because it makes me sound like I'm talking about myself. When we first meet Paul, he, uh, you know, he's an atheist, but he's a likable enough guy. And when he has dinner at their house, there's this kind of sense that, you know, the movie might come to a place where he's not proven to be wrong for his beliefs and that they sort of come to an understanding, but that's not at all what the movie does. Like it completely brings Paul to a place where he has to like acknowledge that he is wrong and that he needs to embrace, uh, you know, the Christian faith. Um, and that that's really the only path to salvation when you're facing evil. And that just kind of flies in the face of a lot of what's interesting about maybe the middle section of the movie when he's having, you know, dinner with them and sort of like courting, um, you know, uh, Veronica Carlson's character. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I think the the last sort of 15 minutes undo any good goodwill that I had for the film's narrative, like leading up into that. Do you think Terrence Fisher would have taken it? Well, because here's the thing, like I. Going to what this movie is about, certainly, and I'm I'm talking from a place of somebody who is actually religious, but doesn't appreciate ham-fisted storytelling, if that makes any sense, you know? Right, right, Like, right. so, you know, when I see this, I'm wondering if, because it was developed for Fisher, you know, Paul, you and I, and Michael, I'm sure you're familiar with Fisher stuff, too, like, he he generally doesn't take that approach. Like, it's obvious what his concerns are, it's obvious what his beliefs are, but it doesn't feel like you're ever being beaten over the head with, well, maybe a little bit with the devil rides out, but that's also devil rides out. Yeah, sure. But, (laughs) but you know, like with this, you have another director essentially shepherding uh, a different filmmaker story to the screen. And I'm wondering if, you know, it's all the more clunky for it. I'm wondering if Fisher had been on hand, like he might've been able to direct that a bit better because Michael, I agree with you entirely. Like this guy is not likable. This is no Van Helsing. This is no father Shandor. This is, he's kind of an asshole, you know? And, uh, it's hard to get behind him and it's hard to get behind the, the movie's themes even when this is the prick who's leading it, you know? 
Well, and I think that you raise a good point. Like, can a movie have religious themes without being ham-fisted and be enjoyable for everyone? And the answer is yes. Because obviously, when you're talking about vampire mythology, and especially Dracula, there are Judeo-Christian themes that come in. Because as we know, holy artifacts, the cross, holy water, etc., are one of the things that are used to battle vampires. That's part of the lore. So if you are not, like, down with that, then you're not in the right genre, right? But... I think that the issue here is that this movie takes the stance that it's the only way when we have learned and watched over time. Like Van Helsing, first and foremost, while a man of faith, which is part of his his construct, is also a man of science. And yeah. I think I think that, um, you know, to leap ahead to uh, Dracula meets the, the Seven Brothers or Legend of the Golden Seven Golden Vampires, depending what, uh, you know, title you want to use when they're in Hong Kong. Van Helsing is talking about, he's like, you know, in the Western world, it would be a cross that would would work. But here, uh, because your belief system is different, it would be the image of Buddha. They talk about it in that movie. And basically, Van Helsing points out it's not necessarily what you believe in. It's the power of belief. And it's, it's you know, the willingness. And so the fact that this movie takes a hard stance, especially like later on where it's like when they stake Dracula, it's like, well, he won't die unless you pray. I'm like, no. That doesn't even make sense because we have <laughs> three other movies that tell us that's not true. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. and apparently Lee himself had major issues with that uh, that sequence. Of course, Lee had probably issues with the entire movie. Um, but you know, I the movie itself, even thematically, I'm not certain that I can say that it's even fully clear on what it's trying to say because you know when you get him stalking into the uh, you know the pub at the very beginning. Uh, like, what are we being set up to think that this movie is going to be about? At first, you know, you think it's about, uh, uh, you know, maybe the persistence of evil, even in its absence, you know, maybe the dangers of ignoring it. But, but you know, the further you go on, it seems like the movie's asking, like, you know, which is the better way to confront that fact? You know, by this movie's account, ignoring it works, you know, but bravely confronting it only serves to revive it. You know, so and later the townspeople just wish to leave it all be and it's on our heroes to uh, to vanquish the evil, you know, and I'm wondering if, you know, maybe the theme is to make certain to fully destroy the threat of evil rather than letting its influence linger. I don't know. I, you know, I mean, admittedly, I that alone, I feel like we could take lessons from that these days. You know, maybe maybe it's not enough to uh, banish Dracula oh. from Twitter and Facebook. Maybe you have to completely undo his influence and remove him from the board. You know, just show Dracula's taxes, damn it. Put Dracula in prison already. You have to you know, cancel just... Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the question I would have is, do you think the movie thinks that the Monsignor is like a good guy or a bad guy? I think, it's in, I think it's in between. I think the fact that he doesn't make it to the end credits as a Van Helsing or Shandor would, I think the fact that he has to admit that he is not the guy to save the day. I don't know that the movie is fully on his side, but we don't know that from the first three quarters of it, you know? Right, right. but his sac- his his sacrifice or whatever, uh, he ultimately is the influence that makes our, our hero see, air quote, the errors of his ways. So it is, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a weird stance. So, um, you know, going back to what I was saying, although I'm being hard on this movie for these reasons, I, I don't mind the concept of a faith-based horror movie, but if you're going to do it, you better make sense. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) 
I'm I'm on board with that. Yeah, I I have no issue. I mean, you know, on a personal level, what I, you know, I've never really worried about how that stuff like affects what I actually think. It's more about does it make sense in the narrative? Are they following the rules they're setting up for themselves? Um, you know, I'm I'm a lot more interested in that. And and I agree it's frustrating that it it seems to contradict a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that the previous Dracula movies have already established uh, just so it can be preachy about its belief structure and ideologies. Um, And that comes through with a very unlikable character with the Monsignor. And I, I, I agree Jinks that it's murky. I think that Fisher would have directed that personally a little better. I think he would have focused more on the ambiguity of that Monsignor character. I think the issue is uh, most of the movie, he feels like he's supposed to be the, the Van Helsing character that everyone's looking up to, even though he's an asshole. Um, and then as the movie sort of gets towards its final act, you start to realize, okay, maybe it's a little murky waters. Like Paul is kind of being given the reins, even though he doesn't believe what the Monsignor believes. Um, and they have that sort of like, yeah, I guess we're hopping all around this movie right now. Sorry. But like, it it isn't handled super well, maybe on a script level, in my opinion, which which makes it harder to buy into and kind of brings me out of the movie more than is typically the case in one of these Dracula movies. I'm not usually overthinking things to this level. <laughs> right. Can we talk for just a second about this really... I think it's an interesting effect. I would understand if it would take some folks out of the movie or if they would even find it cheap. But Freddie Francis, of course, we discussed. He was a DP before. He directed this, so he had his own DP. Uh, His name was Arthur Grant. And he gave Grant his own amber filters to use in the sequences Mm -hmm. where Dracula's uh, sort of influence is felt. And it tinges the edges of the frame with this weird sort of... Sometimes it's amber sometimes it comes through as just bright yellow sometimes it's a mix of like yellow and almost red or reddish orangish tint but i was just wondering how that played with you both and if you thought that was an interesting choice or kind of a misfire i like it yeah i i i think of it as kaleidoscopic dracula um and i i adore it i think i think the visual choices that uh francis makes and um you know, you mentioned Arthur Grant. Arthur Grant shot so many great movies. <laughs> um, God, his credits, he could go on and on and on. And he shot some of Terrence Fisher. I mean, he shot Curse of the Werewolf, which you know how I feel about that. And he shot Phantom. Um, so, I mean, he shot Night Creatures. I mean, he, he's both of them together are a visual force to be reckoned with. And I think all of the creative choices they make visually are are wonderful. And atmospheric and, and make the movie stand out. Um, I think were it not for that stuff, this would probably be my least favorite of the Dracula movies. And as it is, it's not my least favorite and because of those things. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think it's it's the number one strength the movie has for me. Yeah, I think it's a very, very lush. I mean, I mentioned this at the very beginning. You can't go wrong with just how beautiful this movie looks. I think mm-hmm. that uh, there is a considerable amount of care taken in the visuals. Uh, and as the movie progresses uh, and we get to the city, I guess. Is it a city or is it just an, a nicer village? 
Um, the the when we see Dracula there and sort of like the night cityscape, it's, it's really just kind of so lush and and, and gorgeous. Uh, Does it not feel like, in a weird way, you know, we were talking about Francis, you know, just, uh, you know, he's the fun Hammer director, right? Like, Paul, I think you were right. Like, he's, you're just in for a good time, kind of. But in the same way, like, his, uh, he, he has kind of a stripped down approach to filming that I think would almost, it would make sense that it would you know, kind of uh, better support Fisher's concerns as a storyteller. You know, I don't think that's borne out with this movie, but, you know, just as an idea. Whereas with Fisher's direction, which is a little more heightened, you know, a little more theatrical, you know, I I wonder if that wouldn't better suit Francis's approach to the material where he just kind of wanted to have fun and, you know, uh, tell a fun, spooky horror show of the film, you know? Or is that completely silly? I just, I kind of wanted to see more... I think more collaborations between the two would almost be kind of fun to imagine, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I get it. I, you know what I think is is a shame is I I, I can see Francis's filmography uh, doing exactly what you're saying. Like, you know, he had a sense of whimsy. A person who makes trog has to, you know. Um, <laughs> and I think, if anything, this movie is so restrained in in the script. That like the moments where you can kind of see his personality jumping out are really, really marvelous. Um, I just don't know that he got as many opportunities here because of sort of the rigid structure of what we're given. Yeah. I will say, you know, the sequence just passed this. Uh, I do love the fact that Dracula can speak again and he isn't just a, uh, a hissing beast. I love that he's much more... Uh, it, it it feels like he's the much more engaged Dracula from horror of, you know, that, uh, which is the kind of Dracula I prefer. I, I, I like him being a little more, uh, chatty as it were. I like him being a little bit more, uh, Satan than a wild beast. Hmm. And I think yeah, it definitely I... fits here. Although, you know, this definitely seems to be one of those movies that honestly at this point, and I, I guess I haven't done enough reading. I, I know it's the case with this one, but did Lee appreciate being in any Dracula movie after Horror of Dracula? Because with this one, it was said, I was doing some reading, and it sounds like the film was pre-sold to Warner Brothers with Lee's involvement, but with, <laughs> but with no agreement from Lee himself. So Freddie Francis had to basically take part in a series of, and I'm quoting here, slightly hysterical and acrimonious discussions, unquote, before James Carreras had to convince Lee himself to do the film. I, I just, I, I wonder if any of that comes out in his performance, because, you know, I, I think Lee is actually quite good in this movie, but I just wonder how many times he was roped in was doing, you know, these films under protest. Uh, well, one thing I will say is that Christopher Lee came from a different school of acting where, like, once you take the job, you do the job. And I think he's always good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I have heard that he is not, was not crazy about these as they went on. <laughs> right. Well, and, and he, the funny thing was he, he always was trying to get Hammer to make like a more accurate rendition of the, of the novel, of the original character. And he, I guess they kept dangling that in front of him. Like, well, eventually we'll do the one that you want to do. So just keep making these. Um, and yeah, there was this huge, like back and forth and there was some, 
some talk of like, you know, because him starring in The Devil Rides Out was was a bit of a of a risk for them, like putting him as a protagonist, uh, you know, as a main character. And and there was some trade offs and things around like, well, hey, you know, we'll, we'll sort of proceed with this if you do that. Um, but it is interesting because, yeah, he's he's so vocal about how much he uh, uh, wasn't a fan of of the direction of this franchise and it only got more extreme. But to your point, he did keep doing them <laughs> and he kept fulfilling the agreements that he would make um, right up until, you know, till the end. Um, so I, I think there is something to be said about that. And I mean, this was the most profitable one they ever made, which is kind of crazy to me that this really? was the one that made sort of the most profit. Yeah, yeah, this was this was the most profi- profitable Dracula movie. <laughs> wow. Which is is kind of bizarre to me because it also comes kind of towards the end of Hammer's not the end, but this is this is in their decline, right? This is when things started to get tougher for them and um they were headed into their final decade and money was going to dry up soon and uh distribution uh you know and w- which is which is bizarre because you would think like, you know, a lot of people talk about how devil rides out uh, was not the hit they expected. And that sort of led to uh, Fox eventually deciding to not kind of continue co-financing. And yet, you know, they had this, which made a lot of money, but I guess it, it was more about, uh, the the slate making a profit, not just any one movie being incredibly profitable. Yeah. Oh, we just got Paul. Uh, does anyone else think that Paul looks like Roger Daltrey? Because that's all I think oh, about every time. Oh my god. Yeah. That is true. And my, we, we also... Oh, go ahead. I would say my <laughs> 70s fan cast remake of... Uh, <laughs> Dracula has risen from the grave. Stars Roger Daltrey. What's funny? He wasn't Vampirella in the nineties, so yeah. brilliant. <laughs> we also have the wonderful Michael Ripper. Oh yeah, I love Michael Ripper. Oh, he's so great. He does wonderful yeah. work in this movie. Yeah, he he's always a highlight. Uh, every time he shows up, um, even in bad mummy movies, he's great. <laughs> Okay, now I'm actually doubting myself. Was it Daltrey who was in Vampirella? No, he was. He was. Okay, so I'm a looking g- it up now. A Jim Wynorski joint. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it <laughs> makes me sad that we were robbed of a Hammer Vampirella movie, which was going to be, uh, was it Carolyn Monroe who was going to be Vampirella back in the 70s, I think, when they were going to do it? Oh, she would have been great. Or was it somebody else? Maybe it I don't know if it was Carolyn Monroe or not. I don't know. That sounds right, but I I don't remember. There, I heard the script had a lot of problems, though. <laughs> the script's out there, I think, somewhere. I think you can read it. Yeah, I think they you did know, like a reading once. Back yeah, then. yeah. For uh, I, I kind of wish we had gotten the Nessie movie. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, which would have been a co-pro with Toho. Yeah, exact. Yeah, that would have been super awesome. Um, I love this uh, this beer with the broomstick game uh, because 
especially in high definition, you can literally see the hot glue on the bottom of the glass <laughs> <laughs> from, from, from how they put the uh, prop together. That I is kinda, pretty great. Is it weird that I actually kind of want to try that someday, though? I was going to say, if we, ever, uh, if we ever do a live Hammer Pub, we should, we should begin by playing that game. Yes. <laughs> and we have to drink Although it, from glasses like that. Yeah, this is a real game, though, right? Like I've, I've heard. It is, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen people do this before. Also, that guy who was all up in her her cleavage. <laughs> okay, all I of these guys was... are up in her cleavage. Yeah. This poor girl. Um, it looks like Vampirella was due to star. Oh my god, uh, Peter Cushing, who had signed on, Ringo Starr, Orson Welles, and his Vampirella. Barbara Lee. You know, I like this cast. I'm not going to lie. I would, this was, this would be a movie I would look forward to chatting about on Hammer Pub. Like I, that's, that would have been great. (laughs) Damn shame. And why the hell hasn't Vampirella gotten a bigger film since? Like I know the one in the nineties, it didn't really, you know, it, it didn't set the world on fire. And yet, you know, it's still a fun character. The comics exist to this day. She deserves another shot. She does. Uh, and I do love that the comics persist today. I, I know that there's like a strong Vampirella cult out there. Oh my I have God, to write every... about the hot glue. <laughs> yeah. Now that you said it, I can't not see it. <laughs> and here I'm, I'm is impressed that... Veronica Carlson. Yeah. Yeah, she's great in this. I like oh, I'm sorry, Paul. What were you going to say? Uh I, I was gonna make an offhanded comment that for a guy that works in a bakery, he's in pretty good shape. I'm impressed. You know, you'd think he'd he'd have a little gut on him, like eating all those baked goods. It's just lifting those loaves, man. <laughs> just a lot of work. They push a lot of bread. I don't know. No, I, uh, I love Veronica Carlson. I, I was doing a bit of reading about her casting. It's funny. Uh, Carreras had apparently seen one of her photographs in a bikini, no less, in a tabloid paper and offered her a role in this specific movie. And um, and from here, of course, she went on to do uh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, which, you know, unfortunately, she takes part in an unfortunate yeah. sequence where she's talked about at length and, you know, uh, about what it was like for her and Cushing both. And then... Uh, then she was in the horror of Frankenstein, which mm-hmm. I will uh, I'll never miss an opportunity to talk about because I love it. <laughs> but no, I think she... Carlson's great. There was a, a magazine. I want to say it came out. It was the relaunch, I believe, of uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland. So it's been like a decade or so ago. But there was this great sort of lengthy interview with her looking back on her days with Hammer. Short, though, they may have been and just her remembrances of them. And, uh, you know, how she would ask. Uh, she's like, my God, now, you know. I uh, never would have done it even a year or two into my career, but having been brand new to it all, you know, she was asking questions like, uh, you know, she asked Christopher Lee on the set of this movie to sit for her so she could sketch him. And he, he obliged her, you know, and didn't put up a fuss or anything and sat and she provided the sketch, which I believe is published in that magazine. And then of course she talked about, um, uh, you know, Cushing and uh, her relationship with him, you know, uh, having worked with him on that movie and the fact that he uh, he was so kind to her and very much like a mentor. But uh, it's great if you get the chance to track down that particular issue. I don't remember which one it was, but fairly early issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland after the relaunch. Definitely worth seeking out for that interview alone. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I would love to read that. That yeah, sounds great. 
Um, speaking of Cushing, uh, because this franchise is kind of bookended by Van Helsing and Dracula, and there's a lot of no Van Helsing in the middle, I always kind of have like the personal exercise of what was Van Helsing doing while this movie was happening? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And, you know, I just kind of have to wonder because, of course, like Dracula is still out there causing shenanigans, but Van Helsing is somewhere. I assume he's probably just in London teaching. But, uh, you know, it's always a good question to pose to people like, where's Van Helsing right now? That's a great question. I I like to envision Van Helsing as, as sort of like hunting evil in all of its various forms. Like, I almost think you could make a, a Van Helsing movie series in a way and and kind of have him tackling like just whatever's out there you know like like put him in a mummy movie or uh you know some other sort of creature film and he'll he'll find a solution to it like i think he's going to be a a bit restless like he's he's never going to feel like he can uh, you know step away from the scene i mean clearly if he knew dracula was around he would, I think he'd be out there trying to kill Dracula. I think he, wherever he is, I think he believes Dracula is dead. And that's why he's not, you know, there. Although, you know, the timeline with seven, I always mess up the title of the final movie because I always want to, uh, to merge the two different titles together. But you know which one I'm talking about. Was it the... The uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, But Seven Golden Vampires, like, given the... well, no, I've gotten that wrong too. I'm sorry. It's the opening of AD 1972. I'm thinking of. I know the timeline doesn't quite work, but when you ask where Van Helsing is, I always wonder if that sort of prologue sequence doesn't excuse his absence in all the previous movies, you know. And then we leap forward into the future with his uh, his grandson, also played by Cushing. Uh, well, except you know the the timeline. If if you follow that timeline, the events of Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires still would have happened before, obviously, eighty seventy two and Satanic Rites. So I kind of assume that probably right now, wherever he is in the world, not being involved with beer soaked Roger Daltrey and Monsignor. <laughs> uh, because in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, Van Helsing has a son who travels with him to Hong Kong. I wonder if he's just somewhere like raising his son and teaching him about evil while this movie's going on. So then his final kind of like of the era encounter with Dracula that we know about happens in Hong Kong. And then, of course, they battle again in Europe at the beginning of AD 72. And that's how I kind of like make sense of the timelines. Because Is that they... how we should watch them from here on? Like when we're knocking out the Dracula cycle, should we do like Seven Golden Vampires and then AD 1972 and then Satanic Rites? Well, timeline-wise, it makes more sense. Even though Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires was made after Satanic Rites, it still happens before both it and AD 72. So. That makes yeah. sense. That's a good point. And it also means that Van Helsing's son in uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires is either the dad or the grandfather of the Peter Cushing character in 72. Huh. I like that. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like all of this. <laughs> Although, uh, unfortunately, you know, we still have to just kind of uh, turn a blind eye to, was it John Robertson who played Dracula in Seven Golden Vampires? Like his, uh, 
We just have to imagine that that's Christopher Lee, I think. And, uh, um, I got to say, though, since I don't know if I'll be on that episode or not, I, I have to say that John Robertson has the most drag makeup as Dracula. Oh, yeah. Like it oh, is. Yeah. And, and it is delicious in HD. <laughs> like it, it was already overly <laughs> pronounced on 35 millimeter film. But when you watch that Blu-ray, he is wearing like blush and contoured like lines on his cheeks for days. I don't know what was going on, but they were just like, you're, you're not just Dracula. You are like Dracula going out for trick or treat. Uh, it, it cracks me up every time. Cause when he comes f- like flitting out of the, uh, of the, the coffin at the beginning as a bat and then transforms and he's behold, it is I Dracula or whoever, you know, like you're just like, what do you sleep in a full face of makeup? What's that? Like, <laughs> his makeup is out of control that is so true (laughs) i don't i don't mind him in that movie though i don't know i that movie has its own sort of uh, aesthetic and it just kind of works in the context of it well he's in it so sparingly too yeah right and cushing just because cushing is there it makes everything feel okay you know, yeah, you, it, can, you can buy it. It's uh, I wish they would do that with the uh, you know, we've talked about this, but like Hammer reboots, just recast. You know, I'll believe that it's the same Dracula as Christopher Lee or the same Van Helsing as Cushing. Just uh, give me different actors doing their own thing and keep it in canon. I'd be cool with that. I think it would be great. Rather than a remake, like I don't want to see a remake of uh, the Seven uh, Brothers or this uh, son of a bitch. You know, I'm just going to call Seven Golden Vampires. The Legend of the Seven (laughs) Golden Vampire Brothers Meet Dracula. There. I'm just going to smash the two damn titles together. That will forever be. That's fine. (laughs) Um, So, this scene in the movie where the barmaid, like, takes him to bed and then um, it looks like it's about to get sexy, I have to give credit because. You kind of sense that, like, they were, they want to set it up where we believe that she's going to walk in and see this and untold, like, dynasty level drama is about to happen. <laughs> and then uh, they don't, which part of me kind of wishes that scene had happened only because I want to see uh, an Alexis Crystal style throwdown between uh, Veronica Carlson and this, like, <laughs> oh, that'd be glorious. <laughs> but this, th- this movie chooses to be restrained uh, in a number of ways, and that's one of them. So. <laughs> There's a lot of great rooftop action in this movie. There yes. really is. Yeah. And, this movie and, gives... and it's beautifully photographed, the rooftop stuff. Yeah. Were these, were these, well, I mean, they're sets, obviously, but was this shot at Bray? Do we know? No. Shot uh, this, was, this was after they left Bray. Yeah, this was a Pinewood one. And I think it has a distinctly different feel than the other Dracula movies as a result. Like, it, it, it you know, you don't really see his castle, obviously, but even the castle itself, like, it just, it doesn't feel the same as what you got in, like, Prince of Darkness or even Brides or, of course, Horror. But, yeah, but this was this was after Bray was, was uh, they had left. I think that was, what, Mummy Shroud? That was the last thing. Yeah, and this one was... Uh... You know, it's funny, it was the end of an era and the beginning of a new one in many ways with this particular film. You know, you have the new co-production deal with, uh, you know, they had dropped 20th Century Fox. They went back to Warner and Seven Arts. And then, uh, yeah, No More Braid. They were shooting at Pinewood Studios with this. Mm-hmm. And they only, even for losing their director, they were only put off shooting for 
I want to say about a month. They were due to shoot in March of 68, and they only had to push it back until April. So that means that Francis had four weeks to sort of get the movie up and running himself and film the damn yeah. thing. I think it filmed for all because, a month. Uh, all because Terrence Fisher liked to get drunk and play chicken with cars. <laughs> hey, man. Like, everybody's got it, their thing. He, he did it more than once. <laughs> it happened to, the same thing happened to him, like, several years after this. Get a few drinks in me, uh, you know, in Sarasota on a Saturday night. I'm not sure I wouldn't play chicken with cars. Okay. Well, <laughs> not sure I haven't already. Um, but uh, never got my leg broke over it, so at least there's that. No, I don't know. I wish there would be. There is that. Uh, kind of kicking myself for it now, but that's is it Severin Paul the uh, the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee box set that's coming out. Yeah. The bundle yeah, set yeah. that had that book on Terrence Fisher. I told myself I would buy it separately at some point. I still haven't. So now I'm wishing I just bought the damn uh, the bundle with the book too because I want to know more about that guy. Yeah, he's deeply fascinating. Where is the Terrence Fisher bio? Terrence Fisher biopic that we that we deserve. <laughs> A lot well, of directors don't get biopics. <laughs> well, it's true. Well, who plays Terrence Fisher? Ooh. Mm. Um, That's a tough call. <sighs> you know what? For the hell of it, I think he could do it. Uh, why not somebody like Andrew Scott? Oh, well, I do love Andrew Scott. He is great. He doesn't act nearly as much as he should. And you I know, know he I acts think, plenty. I think but... we should uh I think we should give Hugh Grant a crack at it. I think give him like let him do a, a transformative performance. You know, really show get his Oscar. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I also would say that uh, Colin Firth would be a good choice. Oh Ooh. yeah, yeah, I could be down for that. Or just give me, you know, if not a Terrence Fisher biopic, which I realize is uh, unlikely, then maybe a Hammer. You That's know, what like I was. A, an overview of like the history yeah. of Hammer. Like even if it's not going to be a big theatrical movie, but you know what? If we can get like a making of Doctor Who like BBC film, you know, then why not one on Hammer? Because that movie is, uh, have either of you seen an adventure in space and time? Oh yeah, that was the first time that David Bradley played uh, the first Doctor, uh, William Hartnell, and they were like, wait, we like you doing this. So <laughs> they they had him play the first Doctor in the actual show, and he's been doing it in the Big Finish audios as well. I oh think my I God, meant... I didn't know he was doing uh, the Big Finish. Yeah, they're great. They're really wonderful. Uh, I, I recommend Big Finish's first Doctor adventures uh, quite Heartily. Can you believe that Eccleston is coming back for the audio adventures? Uh, I am so excited. I have already pre-ordered it. I can't wait. I just, it, it, you know, I, I go back and forth on that. Like I, I was the fan that shook my fist over the 50th anniversary and the fact that he didn't come back, even though it did give us John Hurt's War Doctor, who I think is one of the best editions that the show ever had. And yet, like, it still bummed me out that Eccleston didn't come back. And yet, you know, after reading his account on what the sort of culture of the show was at the time and the sort of hell that he was put through as that character, like, I understand him not wanting to go back. You know, I understand him not wanting to undertake that role again. But now he's doing the audio dramas and it's like, come on, man. Like, all we want to do is see you in the leather jacket one more time. That's all. Like, maybe for the 60th, you know, it's coming up. Well, uh, yeah, you know, it could happen. That's crazy to think that the 60th, but it's two years from now. That's insane. <laughs> Feels like the 50th was just a couple of years it's ago. Still, 
I yeah. still have to brush up on my Doctor Who. I've, <laughs> I'm I'm very behind. I know. I'm I'm not as as uh, I, I I often feel. Uh, oh, what's the word? Like not. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I need to watch. I need to watch more. <laughs> well, you say that, but you have seen the runs of three full Doctors at this point. So, like, like right? You've seen Eccleston, Tennant, and Smith, right? Je- uh, I haven't seen all of Smith. Oh, I've okay. seen some of Smith, but I've seen all of Tennant and Eccleston. Although Eccleston was just like one season, right? It was it wasn't yeah. a ton, but but Tennant I committed to. I did the whole thing. <laughs> so I did that, Still and I really thing. liked it. I liked it a lot. So I mean, yeah, I just. It's one of those things where I just it, it's like on my giant list of things I know I need to watch and I just have to get to it eventually. Well, it's like when we were talking about Saw, like I, I and I think we talked about this last time I was on the show. It's one of those things that if you are interested in Doctor Who, but haven't deep uh, dug in a lot, it looks very intimidating from the outside. Yeah, it's like, yes, exactly. Yeah. And and so uh, as a very, very long time fan and, uh, you know, the last time I was on, I was drinking, so I can't remember exactly what I said. But uh, I I have been watching it since I was in seventh grade and they used to air the old episodes on PBS. My first episode was Terror of the Zygons with Tom Baker, which is from the 70s. And I've been I've been watching it over my whole life. So I'll tell people, like, I love this show. It's my favorite show. I've watched all the spinoffs and people are like, where should I start? I'm like, that's on you. I, I don't even I don't even know, like. Unlike other shows where I'm like, yeah, you should totally watch Stargirl or you should dig into like Veronica Mars. I can't, I like, you know, you have to really want to do it. Uh, yeah. And and that's it. So, yeah, no, that's fair. I did. Uh, Paul, I will say, though, if you get the chance to watch an adventure in space and time, it is this really sort of lovely look at like the the sort of beginning of that show but told in you know you don't really need to know anything about the show to appreciate the uh you know how yeah, it that, came to be that sort of sounds thing. like something i would be really interested in so yeah i'll check that out that's cool so we have xena here who you know again i was doing a little bit of reading and it sounded like the bbfc was apparently uneasy with the uh the sort of <laughs> sexual infatuation that she has with dracula but they didn't outright object to it what they did have an issue with was uh, how her corpse was eventually disposed of, which in the original screenplay, apparently she was chopped up with an axe, which um, I'd love to know how they were even planning on shooting that. But um, of course, in the finished film, you know, she's sort of casually tossed into an oven. But, um, you know, it, it does sound like I wonder if the BBFC was sort of. Do you think they were progressing at the time? They were loosening the the, the sort of reigns a bit on you know the various uh, productions that were happening under their uh their watch because it seems like the xena character in her entirety is somebody who probably wouldn't have existed in a hammer film say five years prior i don't know it's hard to say because i mean we're still like a, f- a few years away from video nasties you know so it's like we know that the bbfc was very very strict on what could be in a horror film for years and years and years. Uh, I think it does get looser. I mean, like, when you look at the sapphic content of the vampire lovers later, that never would have happened in the late 50s, early 60s. So I think there's, like, um, little incremental things. Yeah, I mean, I think over time they progressed a bit because there are some middle-era Hammer films, like the lusts of, of the vampire and things that never would have made it early on. So... 
she might have just yeah. been the first the first kind of halcyon call of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, at this point, the BBFC had dramatically changed what was allowed or wasn't allowed. And some of that had to do with uh, studio pressure and monetary pressure. I mean, certainly, like, you know, it's funny that in, like, 63, they basically told Hammer, well, you can't make Devil Rides Out because that is anti-religion, which blows my mind that they could right. read that script. I think it's anti-religion. Um, and then one year later, they allow uh, Mask of the Red Death to come out, which deals with a lot of the same thematics, um, uh, you know, with like cults and devil worship and, uh, you know, big seance type sequences and, and all this stuff. And then Hammer sort of leveraged the release of that movie to say, well, like, you have to let us release this. Like the, the very things that you said we couldn't put out. And they're like, well you know, that was different. And, 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 and basically it, it created a path to Duffel rides out. And from there, I mean, once they started easing up on the occult stuff, they started getting a lot, you know, more willing to allow uh, some of these, you know, the more sexual content, more violent content, but you're right. Like when the video nasties thing hit, they started tightening their belts again. So it was kind of like a roller coaster um, around what, they thought was okay and what wasn't but but the video nasties the other difference there is that like with these movies there was still like a classiness about them you know there was still sort of a, a traditional gothic approach whereas a lot of the video nasties were like grindhouse uh f for the time like hyper realistic documentary style movies that just rubbed people completely the wrong way um, visually and stylistically. And I, I think that's more indicative of why they were like, no one can see these movies. They're awful. Um, versus what something like hammer was doing. Sorry. I was caught up in the movie there for a second too. while listening to you. I, I, it's a striking shot. Um, and I got to say, I do love some of the lighting in this movie. I love some of the filters. I mean, this feels pure. This feels, this shot is almost more EC Comics than what yeah. Francis did with Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons I love the filters in this is it feels very creep show. You know, it feels very Tales from the Crypt. Like, uh, it, it's fun. Like, lighting like that reminds you that you're watching. That's the difference, I think, is that Terrence Fisher, I don't think, wants you to ever think about the fact that you're watching a movie as much. Whereas, you know, Fisher wants to constantly remind you of it. Like, Hey, you're having fun. This is, this is, this is kind of exciting. This is entertainment. The, you know, this is art um, in a very overt way. Um, and, and that scene is pretty dark because it's a priest who's about to desecrate, well, like, you know, dealing with a desecrated coffin that, that he himself gave to this evil creature you know it's it's a very dark moment for that character um and feel... yet the lighting is so fun <laughs> how do we feel about the priest overall you know because just watching the movie obviously with what happens later of course but i mean even at this point in the movie it seems like you know the priest is obviously torn like he is kind of this dutiful servant of evil who nevertheless has somehow kind of retained a bit of his humanity, you know, and one imagines that that's uh, kind of torturous. And I don't know why, but the way that he 
maybe it's the fact that he is a, well it's surely the fact that he's a priest but being a priest who is so sort of subservient to dracula like just part of me couldn't help but imagine if this movie had been made in the 80s you know i would have half expected a sequence where dracula pisses on him uh but uh <laughs> somebody got the rawhead rex reference yes, somebody yeah somebody did um, no, I, but I get, but nevertheless, like I'm joking, but I'm not because I could almost see that happening here. Um, but I will say, you know, when it comes to the priest character too, it kind of, uh, it was a shock to read that Ewan Hopper, the actor who played him. Yeah. I imagine when this happened to other actors, they were probably informed in advance, but what blows me away is, is that Ewan Hopper who played the priest, he found out at the premiere of the film as it unspooled before him that his voice had been fully dubbed beginning to end by another actor. Oh no. Yeah. That's, that's terrible. Like why not, why not tell him in advance? If you're going to do it like, you know, okay. But I, but to not let the man know in advance, like what a shock that must've been. Well, I'm sure it, it affected his enjoyment of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and Hammer was kind of notorious for that. Like, because all it took was for like Carreras to be like, I don't like that person's voice. And they would just redub. There, there, there were multiple instances of redubbing that weren't entirely necessary in my eyes, but just felt were at the whims of whatever producer didn't like that particular person's voice. Do you think there was ever even a single case, not even in Hammer's history, I'm talking the history of film. Do you think there's even been one case where an actor found out that way, listened to somebody dubbing their entire performance and came out the other side of that view and going, you know what? Good call. That was pretty great. I'm glad uh, they did that. Uh, probably not, because that's not really, you know, the makeup of a person. Uh, like, I, th- <laughs> I, I don't think... I mean, although I have seen, and I don't really recall her uh, actual um, comment on it, but there is a movie, one of Andy McDowell's first movies, where I believe she was dubbed over by Glenn Close, and oh, wow. uh, and uh, I, I because early in Andy McDowell's career she had a very heavy Southern accent, and I guess they were just like nah. And uh, I, I do remember her saying that it was a shock, but I think she also made the joke like, but if you're going to be dubbed over by somebody. No. Might as well be Glenn Close, <laughs> you know. She she didn't say she liked it, but she was just like, "Well, if you know, I got the better end of a bad situation." <laughs> right. I'm uh, I'm now looking this up. I'm googling Andy McDowell, Glenn Close, and it. Oh my God! It was Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know she was dubbed in that. That's crazy. It makes me want to. I just watched that movie recently. (laughs) That very, uh, very awesome practical effects in that film. Yeah, I dug it. I I really liked that movie when I was a kid. I haven't seen it in ages, but uh, you know, as big a Highlander fan as I am, I feel like I probably should have revisited it by now. It's uh it's it's a Warner Archive. Got a Warner Archive Blu-ray. Sold. Gotta buy it. Gotta buy it during their next four for forty-four sale. If they, they ever do one again. I was gonna say, <laughs> I thought they claimed that they were done. Or is it like the share like retirement tour? Like it just keeps going on. <laughs> <laughs> well that the website closed down and now they so like Warner Archive still exists, but its primary website is now on Amazon. 
So it's unlikely that Amazon's going to sponsor such a sale is what it boils down to. Speaking of Amazon, and this is the point in the podcast where I tend to digress, uh, I think almost to the minute. Have you all seen what the hell has gone on with Amazon and uh, what was it? Was it Apocalypse Publishing or something like that? Um, Where they completely just wiped out the smaller horror publishers catalog with no reason given. Um, Have you all seen this? I don't know anything about this. Okay, I need to look this up. Um, but basically, there was a, a horror publisher. It's the same one who put out the uh, the paperback novelization of Reanimator recently. They did a paperback novelization of uh, Wishmaster. Uh, I think Preston Fossil's new book was coming up through them. Um, I forget what else they've done. And I think Sean DeRager has done a lot of audio work for them, or at least for the books they put out. But yeah, they were... Uh, they had all these pre-orders. They had all these different art uh, uh, authors, rather, you know, sort of in their stable, um, uh, you know, who are obviously making money through the sales on Amazon and whatnot. And basically, one day, Amazon basically pulled all of their books. They canceled their account, told them they would not be able to open a new account, and they were also told that they wouldn't be given the reasoning, and that that was their final notice that this had happened. And of course, they tried appealing. They reached out to Amazon. I think loads of people on horror Twitter sort of tried to rally to their defense, and everybody was adding Amazon. And from the looks of it, it just seems to be a completely hopeless situation, which uh, you know only serves to remind that Amazon, as uh, you know, as easy as it can be to order through them, sometimes they really are. They 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 are kind of the villain in the story. <laughs> When it comes to smaller publishers and artists and mm. authors and whatnot, when they can do something that, you know, downright despicable and, you know, not not sort of confront people over it or give them reasoning for why they've done what they've done. It's it's uh, it's scary, the kind of power that they wield and scarier mm. still that they wield it in such a way. Yeah, I think that it's also a good reminder that if you love independent art and independent artists, you should try and go to the source to support them when you can, because, um, you know, it, it should not come as a shock to people that mega corporations are not looking out for indie artists, you know, uh, yeah. and and it, it's sort of like just sort of be aware of, of what you're dealing with uh, and and if you kind of always contextualize that Amazon is a mega corporation, you can kind of understand what you might encounter when dealing with a mega corporation that deals in numbers and not in people. And, uh, you know, sometimes for the shopping experience that has its benefits and it definitely has its cons, but there are a lot of artists and a lot of creators and a lot of, uh, you know, makers out there who don't have that reach, uh, and don't have, uh, the luxury of dealing with a place like that because they don't benefit from it. Uh, and so if you, you like an art, an artist, you should try and, uh, support them directly or go through a independent bookseller and just independent music store, because those places could all use your help, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was encyclopocalypse, by the way, that was the name of the, uh, the publisher. So, and I'm so That's sorry. Awful, I know right? we've, uh, yeah, it's fucking terrible. And especially to see, you know, they posted Amazon's responses and they're just as callous and cold as you would expect the response from, uh, you know, an entity. Well, like that it's be. like how they allow pirated videos to show up on Amazon Prime. You know, that's there's lots of problems with how they <laughs> run that company. And the uh, 
And the danger of digressing, as is always the case, is that I might talk over an important part of the movie, as with Xena's death here. Can we talk for a second just about Xena? I... She is definitely, like, the best friend in the slasher movie that, you know, you know, she's not making it to the end credits. You know, she's she's not written in such a way that she could. Uh, but I can't help but sympathize with her. There's this sort of, um, there's kind of like this desperation to her in a way. Like, it, it seems, you know, when it comes to Dracula and her first meeting, you can almost understand why she seems so willing to give herself over to someone who appears to want her for any reason, you know, but... You you get to her final moments, I think it's just such a cruel irony that even after she surrenders herself to Dracula, she's still taking second place to Maria, you know, as with Paul. There's something just really mean-spirited about that, I think, in the storytelling. Yeah, and it, it makes the politics of the movie even murkier because it's sort of, you know, we've acknowledged a few times that this movie seems to take a... Uh, a virtuous tract of um, piety, if you will. And of course, Maria from the onset is sort of presented as the woman with looser morals, and she seems to be punished for that. Yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. that's, that's kind of a real shame uh, because yeah. the messaging is, is not nice. No. And it's, you know, it's funny. It seems like that, you know, the charge towards those sorts of tropes are always laid at like 80 slasher films, but it's like, no, no, that was, that was that unsavory sort of thing was present even going back to hammer films. And I wonder if even earlier than that. Yeah. I mean, I think you probably find it all throughout depending on like the, uh, tactic of the storyteller, honestly. Um, this, this movie certainly had, uh, a little bit of, of, the moralistic backbone that be besets those kind of uh, fairy tales or fables that try and warn people of going astray of the flock. So I'm not surprised that it exists here. Um, but what I do like about hammer is that from film to film that would change. Like, you know, she may be punished here, but uh, under a different director and screenwriter uh, that may not have happened. Like if Jimmy Sangster had written this movie, it wouldn't have happened that way at all because uh, Jimmy Sangster wanted everyone to have sex all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Anthony Hines was a little bit different. Uh, no, I, I like, <clears throat> I, I like the Xena character quite a bit. Um, and I, it is a shame sort of how the story treats her. Um, Cause she, she's interesting and I, her unrequited love for Paul is interesting. You know, Paul's sort of, one of the few characters men that we see interact with her that doesn't sort of like objectify her. Um, pretty much every other guy she interacts with does. And I, and you get the impression that that's maybe why she likes Paul. Um, other than the fact that he's a little bit more together and thoughtful and intelligent than some of the other men that we see around her. So I think in some ways that's like, the movie suggesting that she wants more stability than her, I don't know, um, reputation might suggest, uh, given what the movie presents and then being taken under Dracula's spell. Um, and whether or not it's seen as, you know, the power he wields or just sort of the hypnotism 
kind of stuff that he can employ as a as a vampire. Um, and the way she's so, I don't know, just used and discarded, um, to me is really sad. Uh, but yeah, under the context of the, the, the morality, the movie sort of operates under, it comes off as being incredibly judgmental, uh, especially in this last act. And that's just a really unfortunate end to that character, because I think in it, even with the same script under, uh, a different sort of presentation, you could have done something much more interesting with that character. Yeah. No, I agree. I did find uh, just this weird little tidbit. Uh, do you remember the bell tower victim uh, that opened the movie? The, the, the woman who fell out with the, uh, the shockingly unlaced boot, you know, the yes, yeah. like super loose, which of was, course. So apparently her name is Gisela, uh, or at least she's credited as such. But apparently Maria here, her name was Gisela in the screenplay. And I'm just wondering, like, why bother changing the name? Does it does it make more sense for her to be named Maria, as it were? Uh, or could it have just been, you know, preference? I uh... Maybe they were like, we can't confuse the audience, because how many Gisela's could there be? <laughs> <laughs> Count Dracula in one Gisela too many. (laughs) (laughs) Count Dracula in oops, all Gisela's. (laughs) I know now I'm going down the the rabbit. You only Gisela twice. Uh... Gisela Royale. (laughs) Sorry. No, I love this sequence. Just <laughs> if we named episodes, I would totally, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah the... This whole sequence is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think this is Freddie Francis hearkening us back to the horror of Dracula with the same kind of framing shot of Dracula in the doorway, but doing yeah. it his way with lots of uh, filters and light. And he filtered the hell out of it. Sure think... did. Lee is so striking here. Like not only in that, uh, that sort of silhouette shot when he's in the background, but when he steps into, you know, his, uh, not a close up, but, and just his eyes, even, uh, he, he looks so great as damn count here. Plus, you know, this is a sequence too. like every, every sequence that begins like this, we have to ask ourselves like, um, okay. So what is this scene going to imply rape or infidelity? Um, and, in this case, it's, uh, well, goodness. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly a seductive nature to him. And obviously, as a, a vampire, like, some of that is out of her control. But as it was in Horror of Dracula, like, well, that's there the is a like... sense of of giving yourself over to it, like you're you're seduced by it, but you also kind of want it, and it's more exciting than what you're getting out of your actual repressed, you know, day to day life. Well, that's the thing in the text, like it's you know on the surface it's clearly a violation, right? But the subtext is such that clearly, you know, she's. I mean, hell, even the shot with the doll, you know, I, I think it's interesting that she casts aside a doll, like, you know, a, kind of like a symbol of childhood, you know, at the moment right. she, she permits a man into her bed, you know, she's been a very chaste, very virginal character up until this point. And when that doll is cast aside, it, you know, 
uh, one wonders if that's meant to signal that she's a woman. You know, it's uh, yeah, again, the... it, it's all very icky still, even even though because you know he's he's obviously wielding powers that uh, you know subdue her. Yeah, he's not exactly the most savory of gentlemen. <laughs> no. Didn't even bring her flowers. No. But meanwhile, Sideburns McGee here is going to come in and cousin. <laughs> yeah. Sideburns McGee. Is he. So his relationship to them. He, I think, is her mother's brother because he's her uncle. But he's also a Monsignor, which I thought, like, I don't know. I guess I don't know as much about the Catholic structure as I once did. Because I'm like, doesn't he have his own place? Why is he living with them? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. I. It's odd. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure out as, as I was watching it, because they don't really give you, at least as far as I could pick up, they don't give you a direct answer sometimes as to, like, why he's so close to them or why he takes care of them. But that would make sense. Yeah. I know they, they mentioned the uncle thing. So. That yeah. And, and, she, and she only owns one dress because this is the only thing we ever see her wearing. <laughs> I always feel for this character because this character exists in some form in every hammer movie. Who's sort of just like the relay information lady who like, doesn't get to do much else <laughs> because like, you know what I'm talking about. It's she's yeah, like head yeah, mistress right. or like, you know, the, the in marm or something mm-hmm. because she's just like, Oh, Maria has fancies a boy and you're going to meet him tonight. And then like for 20 scenes, we don't see her. And she's like, <laughs> now Maria's sick. Whatever. What shall we do? <laughs> you didn't get the feeling. Yeah. Whenever she comes, yeah, that character, you know, I wish they were all named the same thing. They are the, uh, you know, it's the film's Carl in a way. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I <laughs> whatever they're relaying information, it's almost like that hopeful moment with that character. Like, is 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 this agency? And the film's just kind of like, nope. Sadly, Cassie. Yeah, and that is- you, you do feel bad for her because her whole life is basically spent sort of kind of taking care of this this guy and her daughter, but not really having any sort of life for herself. Um. Which is another weird element in a movie that's all about, like, you know, the righteous Christian hero. Um, because it, it kind of paints, I mean, it, it definitely has a, a, a misogynistic bend to it. Totally. Um, that, yeah. that puts the man at, at the front of everything. Um, and the woman as sort of a side character in every respect (laughs) i mean honestly i i would love to see sort of the uh reimagining of this where we get kind of like the aunt gladys gets her groove back kind of story where (laughs) like you know dracula comes knocking on maria's like bedroom door and maria's like oh woe is me it's dracula and dracula's wait i'm sorry i i actually meant is is, where's your aunt's room like that's like I, i i want that i want the mature relationship where that happens. Yeah, kind of the the Jacob's wife version of this. Exactly. <laughs> I still haven't seen that, but I want to. That that would make this movie a lot better. 
like if Dracula was sort of like after the Anna character and they had some sort of like romance that sparked something within her that's been buried for many years. I mean, clearly something not great happened to her because she had this daughter. Like, where's the husband? Did he die? Did he leave? I know that I have to remember which version of Dracula we're talking about here, but do you think there's, and obviously it's not the case with the movies that we have, but do you think anywhere in there, there could have been the possibility that Christopher Lee's Dracula might've wanted love. Um, I mean, what was Baron Meinster? Thank you. Fair. There you go. (laughs) You know, that's like, again, we're talking about rebooting Hammer and, you know, recasting or whatever, but I'm wanting to keep it in canon. Give me the in-between quill, like in-between like horror and brides that introduces those two characters. Like, show me that relationship, you know? Yeah, because we never really see them together, but like, Meinster is bent out of shape that Dracula is not around anymore. So... He's so upset he had to go back and live with his mom. I like I'm I'm re I'm reading between all the lines here. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Accurate. I mean, but I think that I think that part of the Dracula mythos to some degree is that there is kind of that gothic longing, right? Like we, we Hammer doesn't really touch upon it, and I think Coppola goes too far because it's not in the text. But there is something where where Dracula really, really wants Mina, you know, specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that has become telegraphed thanks to the Coppola version because it's assumed that it was a reincarnated lover. But that didn't actually exist in the Dracula mythos until the uh, 1970s D- Dan Curtis, Jack Palance version of Dracula. So that's not in the the Stoker text at all. But even in the original novel, like he's he's into her in a way that like he... He he has a you know a meal on wheels with Lucy, uh, but Mina's who he wants, and I think that Dracula probably did want love, but Dracula is not somebody who uh, loves well. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned uh, a title earlier as a poster on your wall, but I think the the Langella nineteen seventy nine Dracula kind of does that best for me, like the the romance of it, like the longing the the connection he's seeking, but can't ever really wrap his hands around, you know? Um, honestly, I think that, okay. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I was just say, honestly, one of my favorite versions of uh, the original, like adaptations of the original novel to screen is that I think that it handles all of the elements, the Gothic romance, especially just like pitch perfect. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's great. And I think that the um the the restored theatrical cut that Scream Factory put out with the with the restored color is just stunning. Oh yeah, it's gorgeous. I I I love the color version so much more than the the desaturated that he did in the 90s. Like the the color is so lush and it's so vibrant. And again, like like you're kind of speaking to the gothic romance of it all like comes shining through in that colorized version in a way that the desaturated kind of loses. Yeah. You know, Dracula in that movie never has fangs. Oh, wow. Huh. That's interesting. I don't think yeah. I'd ever considered that. So in it was all a... of Dracula films, is it just he and Lugosi who don't have the fangs then? I think so. Wow. And it still blows my mind that Lugosi doesn't, you know, whenever they, uh, 
I would love to delve into the issues there that kept Lugosi's, uh, you know, a, a appearance from being included with all of the universal branding throughout the nineties. Because when I was a kid growing up, like, you know, when pizza hut would do a universal monsters tie in or, you know, Pepsi or, you know, any number of things like you would always get all of the monsters back to back. You would clearly get like, uh, Lanchester's bride and Karloff's Frankenstein and, you know, the invisible man, obviously from that movie and whatnot. But Dracula was always this kind of flat stereotypical idea of what we expect a vampire. You know, it's the jet black slick back hair, pale skin, you know, tiny little pointed teeth poking out over his lips but it clearly wasn't Lugosi, you know? So I, I, I just wonder what the deal was there with uh, um, Universal, I guess, maybe not being allowed to use his likeness, perhaps? I think he had a likeness rights thing for a while that has since, you know, passed on. Or maybe the family has, like, reversed their stance. Because they use him in a lot these days. Uh, I just kind of wish, like, you know, because I just love when things get weird. I wish if they couldn't have gotten the licensing for him they just really like went in the other direction and they're like, you know what uh, children at pizza hut, here's your John Carradine Dracula. And <laughs> c- cause you know what? Kids love John Carradine in my experience. Children love Carradine. <laughs> As well. They should. No, I, uh, I just saw recently that they put out a, um, Oh, an edition of Stoker's novel, but illustrated throughout and they made a big deal of it being uh, Lugosi's likeness um, that the story is illustrated with. So it's it's a straight, uh, you know, illustrating of the original Stoker novel, but it's using Bela Lugosi to tell, you know, that story. So I think that's kind of neat. I haven't picked it up yet, but I really want to. I've been uh, I've been snapping up uh, Dracula related graphic novels like crazy recently. I uh, finally picked up the trade paperback of Bram Stoker's Dracula. The um, Oh, the 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 Mike Mignola uh, penciled adaptation of the Coppola movie, and then at around the same time, Topps Comics had put that out in the '90s. Afterwards, they put out uh, a Roy Thomas written uh, book called Vlad the Impaler, which was kind of a look at uh, you know the real Dracula, but book ended with uh, you know some some vampires and some cool stuff. So they recently uh, published that in trade paperback form. Some nearly 30 years later and what's cool is instead of using the dodgy collar work from the early 90s they actually uh just published the black and white artwork from i believe it was uh, esteban moroto whose work is just gorgeous so if you're a fan of dracula definitely pick up those two books they're uh they're well worth it well and mm. if we're talking dracula comics and uh one of my favorites that really kind of harkens to the hammer era as well was marvel's the tomb of dracula oh my um, god yes and that's kind of my thing. It's like, all right, Marvel, phase five. When are we going to get Dracula? Let's bring him in. Like, Dracula, let's make it happen. Tomb of Dracula, Monster Frankenstein, Werewolf by Night. You know, yes. By God, there deserves to be like a small... You know, we're getting a Morbius movie. Moon Knight's getting a TV show. Why not those characters? Well, Blade Blade is entering again. And, uh, you know, Blade a- appeared in the pages of Tomb of Dracula. So I feel like it's not out of the question. Um and there you go. You want Andrew Scott to enter the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Dracula is not a bad character for him. Oh, my God. Give him the mustache. Yeah. Like, give him the, I mean, full on evening wear cloak. I know they probably have to update his look. I get it. But give him the mustache at least. Um, 
Yeah, Tomb of Dracula is great. Um, I, I keep hoping that they'll, you know, I mean, given the craziness with WandaVision and the fact that we got Agatha and, you know, obviously they're hinting at Mephisto making an appearance at some point in the MCU. I don't know that it's, you know, that much of a stretch to imagine Frankenstein and Dracula popping up in the MCU at some point. And I really, really hope they do. And they could make a meal of it. Like, you know, they could really make fun of it, too. And in the way where, like, just imagine the big crossover moment and Dracula shows up and you have, like, Tom Holland as Peter Parker, like, this guy's Dracula? Like, are you kidding me? Kind of deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here's... Oh, go ahead, Paul. No, you're fine. I was going to say, if there's one way to get me invested in the MCU, it's bring in Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) So here is the uh, the big staking sequence that Lee apparently had a massive issue with because of the, uh, you know, well, all of the films before, you know, you stake the vampire, that's it, done, right? And uh, with this, you know, it's, well, you have to be a believer as well, which I have to imagine inspired like a similar moment in Fright Night. But, um, but yeah, just uh, uh, by all accounts, he was apparently appalled at this and how it ran counter to what had been established. And uh <laughs> he said, and I'm quoting here, I thought that it was quite wrong, but that the audience at the time thought it was stunning. I don't disagree. I mean, like, I've already spoken to this on this episode at length, but it's just a sort of like we have three movies before this that, you know, Van Helsing basically, you know, expositorily explained to the audience how you defeat a vampire and then even what we learn later in other movies, it's not even necessarily Judeo-Christian imagery or prayer. It's just belief, et cetera, et cetera. So that they tried to make this happen here, it just feels so out of the continuity of the universe, despite being in continuity, that like you're just kind of like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, it doesn't, I don't know. It's weird. It is, I guess, you know, every installment can have their own sort of rules. I mean, that seems to be the way with, uh, you know, like, I I mean, maybe it was retconned, you know, out of uh, serious contention for canon, or maybe, you know, it played fast and loose with the rules that were already established with the first movie, but something like uh, The Second Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think is a great movie, in its own right, doesn't necessarily play by the rules already established within the franchise, you know? Um True. And, uh, but yeah, so here, you know, it's kind of like, is it canon? Is it not? You know, is it just a weird thing for this one instance? You know, who knows? God, he looks great here. I don't know that Christopher Lee ever looked better as this character. I don't know that he was ever shot better than this. No, I think think you're right. I think that's a big part of it is, is how well it's shot. And and the, the photography is great. And the, like the fil you mentioned the filters that, um, you know, Freddie Francis brought, for this film, the filters make those shots and Arthur Grant knows how to use those filters and light those filters. And it's not just, you know, a, a spectrum of color. It's, it's sometimes it's heavily green. Sometimes it's red. It's very psychedelic, um, almost like Italian giallo esque, uh, lighting where there's no diegetic, reasoning for the light to be that way in any of these scenes but it but it creates mood and atmosphere in a way that's just so lush and uh affecting i would need to look um, it up and... i don't know oh sorry go no no you're good keep going no i was just saying you know uh to your point i i agree like the uh 
the psychedelic nature of it sort of, you know, I, I, there is this one shot where the sky around him is red. His face is green. There are highlights dancing off of his hair. It looks like, and I would have to look it up to see how far back this artist worked. I don't know if the artist would have influenced the movie or the movie, the artist, but, you know, talking about famous monsters of Filmland, to go back to one of their, uh, you know, classic artists who did their covers way back in the day, but there was an artist and I'm going to massacre his name and I apologize in advance, but I believe it was uh, Basil Gogos. Oh yeah. Basil Gogos. Yeah. Gogos. Okay. I met the man once and uh, being fair, he spelled my name wrong when he signed his book to me. So I figure that's, uh, you know, we're even now, but um, <laughs> you know, his, his artwork was very much that, you know, he would take, even going back to like the universal stuff, he would take uh, characters that had only ever existed in black and white, like Karloff's Frankenstein, but he would paint them in these like sort of acidic or psychedelic, you know, colors. And it just, they pop and look so fantastic. And to me, Lee in that sequence, when he's, you know, sort of uh, striding across the rooftops, it looks like a Basil Gogo's painting come to life. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that this movie very much is, is made by uh, those artistic choices. Something that just occurred to me um, is that this movie must be entirely like set in Eastern Europe because when Paul goes tearing after them, it's like a couple hours ride back to Transylvania. So are all of these people supposed to be like Romanian or like because everybody's very British, but they wouldn't be. So I'm kind of. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Because we know, as per the other movies, that London is is a boat's trip away, whereas Paul like leaves his little city and is there by horseback in the same outfit a few hours later. And Dracula is taking his carriage on sped up film uh, back to the castle. <laughs> yeah, this is. Um, I mean, do the horses need to be beaten to that degree? Really, Dracula? Well, he's not nice. He also. I I don't know if anyone's ever done an article about this, but Dracula, as played by Christopher Lee, slaps more people than every other incarnation of Dracula. He is a very slap happy uh, version of the character. At least once in every movie, he like backhands somebody. <laughs> he's a he's a dick. <laughs> yeah, he's a dick that wants to assert that dickishness in a dominating, uh, violent way. No, honest honest question here, like. Uh... Was there a bigger dick Dracula than Christopher Lee? No. I mean, he's my favorite no. Dracula, but like there's a he he sells just like how like evil he is on every level. It's not just yeah. like grand evil. He's like petty evil too. Like even <laughs> yeah, he just talking he about murdering names, but like uh Kleis Bong, maybe from the BBC Netflix Dracula. He he's a dick too, but he's at least charming and funny and you know, uh, Paul, you haven't watched that yet, have you? I, I haven't yet. No, Damn it, <laughs> I keep telling you I'm going to and I will. What I like <laughs> ab- about that version of Dracula, you're right. He's charming. He's super evil. But like there's there's that sort of um, fatigue of immortality that he portrays in a really interesting way. And in that even though he has his agenda, he has time. And I like that he uh he and Van Helsing in that version more than any other version like each other, kind of. He's just like, well, I got nothing else to do and you're entertaining, so let's do this, you know? <laughs> do you think there's anything to the fact that y- you're right, they do like one another and that goes to... Uh, 
Paul, you haven't seen it, so I'm going to dance around spoilers. But I love the Van Helsing in that version, and I love that Van Helsing is a woman. Yes. But I wonder if... No, given the creatives, I can't imagine that was the case. Never mind. It's a dumb question. Um, Well, I will say that next to Peter Cushing, that Van Helsing is my favorite screen van helsing because it was just she's amazing it was it was so fresh it was such a great way to do it but no they just really had a a good dynamic and it 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 gave the sense that dracula and van helsing uh are are engaged in a game of chess that they both enjoy whereas in these movies it's just always dire always mad oh here we go cross death you would think that would be enough but now we have to have uh the priest show up and do some praying because established rules that, that weren't a, really established. That is a yeah, I, I think it would have been a lot more effective if the the cross that had sort of exercised his castle was enough. You know, yeah. I think that's... You know, I see this and I wish there had been like Dracula toys that came out back in the day. Like, you know, you know those old Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars toys and play sets? Could you imagine like this castle exterior playset with the cross that you can impale Dracula on. Probably not great for kids four or five years old, but damn it. I buy the hell out of it as an adult. Just for display. Now it comes with Transylvania Priest with prayer action. (laughs) (laughs) Squeeze his legs together and he's throwing his hand out. Yeah, right. No, I, uh, Paul, seriously, the, the BBC Netflix Dracula is amazing. Yeah, no, I guess the question I was going to ask is, do you think that they felt compelled to make Van Helsing a woman, given where that relationship, how that relationship was handled between Dracula and Van Helsing, or do you think that didn't really even occur to them when they no, were? No, absolutely not. Mark Gatiss wrote that. Like, if, if, fair, fair, like, fair. Yeah. Mark Gatiss would have had like it, it, they would have had that relationship whether it was a man and in fact I feel like he probably would have been more inclined to have some uh, homosexual themes for his Dracula uh, and I think they still did to be honest not I think I know that movie that uh, version is hella like ambiguous so yeah I love it I it's one of my favorite Draculas and it's plus I his Dracula is utterly unique to me I cannot look at that performance and think, oh, well, clearly he's pulling a little bit from Lugosi, a little bit from Lee, a little bit from... Like, no, it's just... It, it's fully fresh and new, and I adore it. Well, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. Nobody oh. does blood like Hammer does blood. I love it. I know. It's just that, like, vibrant tempera paint red, and it's amazing. And, it, like, you know, this is exactly where we find the remnants at the beginning of Taste the Blood. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, so we can pick right up. I love the conceit of Taste the Blood of Dracula, where it's just, like, rich. That, to me, is, is a really, really great gothic story, because it's a commentary on... Um, you know, class structure. It's like those guys are so rich, they're bored, they don't have anything else to do, so why not occultism? And I just love, I love that, that in a way, it's sort of the um, a, a, a great counter to this, which leans so heavy into piety. It's that, that movie is very much like, oh, well, you know, blind devotion can get real dangerous for this reason, too. So they're kind of like nice companion pieces. Yeah, yeah I never really considered that, too. That. They play really well together, and it, it's a good foil to what this movie offers, you know. 
which again I could have done without uh, Paul sort of doing the cross thing at the end because it just feels so counterintuitive and disingenuous to who that character is. Right. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, you know, until we uh, have to encounter a, uh, a master vampire and kill him on the cross, maybe we, we don't get the same. True. True. That, that might change his mind. <laughs> right. So do you think, can you imagine, you know, I made passing mention of it earlier, but do you imagine that this movie had any sort of influence over Fright Night, which was clearly drawing from Hammer anyway, but the idea of... Uh, you know, Charlie wielding a cross, but without faith was basically ineffectual until he, uh, he pressed forward, you know, and believed harder. See, I always thought that that was borrowed from Salem's lot for Fright Night, but you know, it could, Ah, it it could be both, uh, were influenced by this because, you know, Stephen King, of course, is a master of classic horror, uh, or a student of, of classic horror, which made him a master of modern horror. And, uh, Fright Night, of course, is, um, like you said, is a, is a love letter to these Peter Vincent is, is even named for, you know, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. So I would, I would be shocked to discover that Tom Holland didn't know what he was doing, but uh, I don't know. Good question. We'll have to ask him. We'll have to have him on the show. You should. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, we have reached the end of this movie. It seems like it flew by. Um, I guess in wrapping up guys, overall thoughts on this movie, I feel like we've already given our thoughts, but, uh, overall, you know what? Let's say this, how essential a hammer horror is this movie? Would you say, you know, beyond it being a part of a well-known franchise, you know, one of the two big ones, you know, would this necessarily be a movie that you would recommend to a sort of, hammer novice or would you tell them to stay far away i think staying far away is a is a very um heavy-handed uh response to this movie i would more i would more so say that this is a movie that you should investigate hammer a little bit and if you decide it's for you then this is maybe like a phase two or three dig in because i think even though this is not my personal favorite dracula movie i still like a lot of it and as i've said you know i have it the poster for it hanging on the wall. I have a lot of things to say about it. But also, if you love classic horror, this is a great way to discover who Freddie Francis was and what he brought to the Hammer universe as opposed to the Fishers uh, and the Roy Ward Bakers. Um, and if if you're looking to really learn the history, uh, I don't know if this is where you start, but it's definitely a stop on your journey, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I echo those sentiments. Um, I think it's it's not a a bad movie by any means, and I think it it's it does offer some really interesting stuff um, in terms of the visuals. Um, and you know, Veronica Carlson is one of the great Hammer leading ladies, so it, it's it's a movie that that has enough uh, elements that are worthy of kind of the classic hammer title uh that i would say it's it's worth seeking out but it but it wouldn't rank on like a top 10 or probably even a top 20 uh if i was going to make like my favorite hammer movies um and i would say once you yeah once you kind of get into hammer and you decide this is something that you're really interested in 
uh, it would then be something worth kind of moving on to. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with you both. Um, well, it looks like next week we are going to be back with Terrence Fisher's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. So we're getting kind mm. of a uh, Veronica Carlson double feature, as it were, back to back. So, uh, yeah, gonna gonna have things to say about that one. Um, <laughs> yes, many some, things to say. Some things to say for yeah. that one. Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in wrapping up, Mr. Roddy, again, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show again and to chat some Dracula with us. As always, you are welcome back anytime. Now, before we go, can I ask, where can folks find you out online and uh, what can they keep an eye out for from you in the future? What do you have out there that people should check out? Uh, probably the best thing uh, or best way to find me online is on Twitter. Uh, that's the most active of my social medias, although I am kind of infrequent on everything these days because I'm working a lot. Uh, but at Michael Verratti is just my name. Uh, as of right now, uh, project-wise, I uh, am gearing up to make a feature film that I can't really discuss too much, but um, we'll have news on soon. Uh, I will be returning to the new season of Dragula, which will be on uh, Shudder coming up here soon, season four. So people can uh, look for me on that. And I do have a couple short films that I put together during COVID as a means to stay creative uh, that are kind of slowly making their way out to festivals. So I would say those are kind of the new things. But if you're interested in all my old stuff, uh, all of my filmography is on IMDb. Uh, there's a little something for everybody from thrillers to Christmas movies to horror to, you know, even a Disney game show. So, you know, uh, check it out. <laughs> tell me what you like, what you don't. I'm I'm sure we'll have something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Actually, can I ask? And this is uh, this is not an underhanded way to try and pin you down the showing back up on the show later. But are there any Hammer movies coming up that you would be interested in chatting about? Um, well, I, you know, I, of course, will, would return for the Dracula movies that I mentioned earlier. Um, gosh, I would have to look ahead, like, on the timeline where you're at. Uh, what, you're in the middle of the 70s right now? Or no? not Yes, not. yeah. Uh, well, well yeah, late we 60s. 70s. We're, we're, like, late 60s, moving on to 70s. Okay, I'm actually just going to look at their uh, their filmography timeline just so I can kind of... You know what I would love to talk about? Because I'm always talking about the gothic horrors. If you touch upon any of the uh, modern ones, or that's not part of the plan, is it? It is. No, I. as far as I'm concerned, we're going right through until The Lodge. Uh, because I would uh, love to chat about... Uh, you know, I, I I really enjoy Die Die My Darling. Um, I think that, uh, or, or although I think we you might be past that at this point. Oh, I think we might be. Yes, um, uh, we, we can always go back and pick one up. So, um, but I love I I love Fear in the Night. I love Demons of the Mind. I love Straight Until Morning. Those are all movies that I really quite enjoy. Um, I actually, to be honest, have a lot to say about Captain Kronos as well. So, I mean, you you, you would be hard-pressed to find something I wouldn't be willing to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah, it looks like, uh, yeah, looking at the calendar, we have... You're right, Paul. We're still in the late 60s. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed is 69. After that, already, is Taste the Blood of Dracula in 70, and then Scars of Dracula. Also in 70, we got two Dracula movies in one year. I did not know that. Yeah, it was a it was a two hander, and then right after that, we are at Horror Frankenstein and the Vampire Lovers in 1970. We are chewing through these. It feels like we're uh, we're going to be reaching the end of the classic run here before uh, 
Well, it's going to be yeah. a bit, but still, yeah. What Now, what do you consider the end of the classic run? To the Devil of Daughter? Yes, yeah. All right. Uh, and then after that, I did, by the way, buy the damn DVD of Beyond the Rave uh, after our last chat. Uh, I, I tracked one down on uh, eBay. I still have not picked up a region-free player, so... Um, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but Paul, do you have a copy of it? No, I need to. I need to get it. I was going to say, as far as I'm concerned, unless you you didn't want to or you can't acquire a copy, I was I was all in for maybe checking that one out for the first time for the podcast. So yeah, no, I'll 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 figure it out. Yeah, I'm in. Which, by the way, Beyond the Rave stars Jamie Dornan uh, years before Fifty Shades of Grey and Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. So. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe that Hammer had like a pretty solid run there for a couple of years, and then, then they just sort of well, there was Let Me In, uh, The Resident, Wakewood, The Woman in Black, The Quiet Ones, The Woman in Black, Angel of Death, and then five years pass until they they had something to do with the Lodge, which is maybe the least hammery hammer that they've hammered so far in uh, in this new run. Um. I could be mistaken, uh, but I think that at one point the intention had been that they would also have been involved in that Winchester movie with uh, Helen Mirren. But, that would have made a sense. But it's not a Hammer film, but Simon Oakes, the CEO and owner, current owner of Hammer, uh, is an executive producer on it. So, oh, okay. Huh. I wonder why, because that is, I mean, that feels kind of of a piece with their other recent, you know, movies. So I don't know. That's a bit strange. All right. Well, that is a mystery we will contend with at a later date. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Paul, where can folks find you at yeah. online? And uh, yeah, what's the next uh, Hammer Factory you have coming up? Um, yeah. So uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I am at the always modest Paul is great 2000. Um, I had a Hammer Factory column come out about, what, four or five days ago on Captain Kronos, actually, on, uh, on my bloody disgusting column, and uh, ran through that movie. And then next month is going to be um, The Devil Rides Out, so that'll be coming up soon, and I'm working on something beyond that as well. So lots of Hammer writing in the future. Nice. Good deal. All right. Well, hey, Paul, thank you. Uh, Ms. Verratti, thank you. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.